Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellished Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists, and if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll try to get that taken care of. So also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube, and you can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Today is July the 18th. It's Monday, and we are talking with Jake from Starward, from Key in the Lake, from all things whiskey infamous, and I realize I probably should have cut out though whether you're a bourbon fan just a whiskey fan in general um because you kind of seem to be that guy um and, I, and i'll start with this it, it feels like the first interview that i did was with chris blattner from uh urban bourbonist slash bourbon charity slash whatever else uh <laughs> another chicago resident and you and so i've bookended these interviews with two of the most beautiful men that i can <laughs> I feel like maybe I need to move to Chicago and have some of that rub off on me. I don't know what it is about you folks. Uh, you're just you're just so damn pretty. It's in the dirty Lake Michigan water. All that That's, stream. You know, I wondered that. Yeah, you know, that stream of lusciousness that flows right through the middle of the city and the river. Man, you just you can't go kayaking in there without getting sick and growing some hair. You know, and I imagine it may also help, you know, kind of boost up your immune system, you know, just being around that that level of water. I was actually up there uh, back at the beginning or end of May, beginning of June. I can't remember for work. We have an office that's uh, working in the downtown area. And, you know, it is a beautiful city. Absolutely is a beautiful city. And uh, it's significantly better than the rural reaches of western Kentucky where there's not a ton of things to do. Uh, you know, most everything closes at 9 p.m. We're, we're not used to that type of uh, that type of atmosphere. <laughs> I hear you on that. No, I grew up in Iowa, um, what I called the golden abyss, golden for <laughs> the corn that was surrounding us at all areas of life. And if you lived in a city like I did in Des Moines, because you could go five minutes outside of the city and you're in a cornfield in any direction. And then the abyss was people kind of getting stuck in that structure of life or graduate high school, go to college by 30, you have a couple kids. Wasn't really for me. So I got out as soon as possible. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a regional viewpoint. We don't have I mean, we have a good quantity of, of corn here, but we're in the uh, boot of Kentucky uh, and we have a lot of tobacco. That, that is our big thing. And so you grow up with uh, maybe not that bright green, but a darker green that, you know, it's all the wonderful things of, of nicotine and smoke and just the, you know, it's either corn for whiskey or tobacco for smoking. But, you know, we're going to kill you one way or the other for if you're from the state of Kentucky. I hear that. Um, so you you work for you work for Starward. Let's look, maybe that's a good place to start. That's yeah, that's where sure. I know you from specifically. Um, there's been a host of different special events or fundraisers where you've donated bottles. I've been at private tastings that you've hosted. I've got uh, three bottles here that that you've helped me acquire over time. I actually had four, and I gave one of them away because that's what you do with whiskey. You make sure other people kind of understand the things. But but tell me about Starward a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thanks again for just having me. I'm glad I could follow up Chris. Chris is becoming like the next host of our podcast, the always the filling guy. If we, were, uh -huh. if we can't, if my other two, whatever, friends, jagoffs, good mates um, can't show off, 
show up to the podcast they uh chris is always there a call away and ready to answer that call but um yeah star wars uh an amazing distillery out of melbourne australia so i've been working for the brand now for a little over three and a half years hard to believe yeah no sense of time either after covid so it's been uh it's been a it's that, been a ride. There, there's that two years of just whatever happened man Yep. It's like, Jake, today you're not our brand ambassador anymore. You're just doing marketing. You're a photographer. You're a graphic designer. You're whatever at this mm -hmm. point. I'm just thankful I had a job the entire time and, you know, got to keep working for the brand. But uh, back to the brand itself, it's a single malt distillery based out of Melbourne, Australia. Um, been, been in operation for just over 15 years now. And there's a lot of different ways you can create whiskey. A lot of people just think, why is there so many brands out there when you're just kind of recreating the wheel of something else? So our founder took it upon himself, his name's Dave Vitale, to start a brand that was introducing the world to Australia peer through and through inside the bottle and on the outside the bottle too, where we take local farmers and develop our grain, develop our yeast strain with them. And then we put all of our whiskey inside of used red wine cast from Australian vineyards. Australian red wines are kind of the best known product when it comes to the alcohol world. And what our founder thought about doing was why not integrate that into our whiskey and not overwhelm the whiskey with this really sweet, juicy flavor you get from um, the red wines out there, but kind of integrate it very softly and find the balance between a new single malt, but also exploring the full maturation inside of red wine casts. And that unique approach, that innovative approach that they have as a brand on the outside, the on the inside of the bottle, but also the outside of the bottle with the beautiful branding. If you've ever seen a bottle of Star Wars, one of the prettiest bottles out there, really attracted me as a graphic designer, photographer, creative type, but then also somebody who works in whiskey. So right away, it was kind of just a home run as we're the night of the home run derby. No pun intended. <laughs> hey, well played. You're able to kind of seamlessly weave that right into it. I mean, being from Chicago, it's a requirement. I assume <laughs> um, that if you're from Chicago and you're not from the, you know, what, two blocks immediately surrounding White Sox Stadium, you're a Cubs fan, right? Pretty much. I grew up a Cubs fan, weirdly. I mean, a lot of people from Iowa are just because of WGN back in the mm -hmm. day and be only being a five-hour drive, four-hour drive, depending where you're at in the great state of Iowa. Go Hawks. Um, you're, everyone's kind of a Cubs fan in that sense, but I grew up in all Chicago sports, and my dad's from Cleveland. My mom could care less about sports. So how I developed this like fascination for teams that started that were involved Bears somehow, that's what it was. I just loved Bears as a kid, so mm -hmm. I became a Bears fan instantaneously. My first Halloween costume I can never remember was a Jim, Jim Harbaugh costume, um, quarterback number four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, one of my favorites out there. He actually was coaching. Uh, I went to a school called Drake in Des Moines for college, and he was coaching okay. University of San Diego, uh, their football team, before he went to um, Stanford. So they were playing them, and it was pouring down rain. But me and my buddies, are, they are also from Chicago. Um, I was from Iowa, obviously. But uh, we stood in the pouring rain, waited till after the game to go say hi to Jim Harbaugh, shake his hand, maybe get an autograph. He wasn't that uh, that friendly enough to give us an autograph, but shook our hands and said hi. And we're like, well, that was worth sitting in the rain for three hours. But yeah, so it can answer your question. Yes, I'm a Cubs fan. I was actually just at the Cubs game on Saturday night, watching them lose in a doubleheader back to back games in one day and extra innings, you know, going down to the Mets. You know, and I I'll, I won't I won't lie. I I knew the Cubs thing just because of Instagram. You posted a picture. You're wearing a Cubs hat. Wow. Um, but um, here in town, you know, I live in rural Western Kentucky in a small town, small university town, and we've got a guy that owns a, a restaurant um, downtown called Muggsy's, and he actually uh, moved here from Chicago. He actually funded his 
restaurant by selling his um, three-story home that was you know within walking distance of White Sox Stadium, mm. and the <laughs> the revenue from that was enough to buy a home here and a restaurant and, and live. You know, that's the cost of living difference. But um, spent quite a bit of time eating at his restaurant because I like to eat. You know, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. And you know, he, he kind of gives me the same feedback that a lot of my friends from Chicago and and college had was, you know you're either a Cubs fan or you're a White Sox fan. If you lived right near the stadium, it's sort of kind of the, the way that kind of uh, plays out. Um, so you, you, you work for star Ward, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You, you tell me what, what the real deal is because you work in the industry. Um, it feels like in the last six months, star Ward is gaining more and more traction in North America at a speed a little bit better than maybe the year before that. And I know we're, we're also talking about COVID times. COVID times like confabulate everything. It's really mm-hmm. kind of hard to understand what happens, but I've seen more press, more positive input, more reviews, more everything around Star Wars. Yeah, I think it, they're definitely on that. I mean, the numbers show it. I believe we're up 60% in sales um, from wow. last year to this year um, for our calendar year that ended on June 30th. But yeah, I think people are starting to figure out that whiskey's being made outside of America, Scotland, and Ireland, and Japan, and realizing that there's really good whiskey being made in all parts of the world. And I think Star Wars falls right in there. That was one of our goals when we first launched in the U.S. was not just to be a contender in the U.S. market, but to be the, the leading, the beacon of light, if you were will, for world whiskey and be number one on those trending boards for world whiskey, which usually means any whiskey made outside of uh, the United States, Canada, Japan, or not Japan, but uh, Aust- or not Australia either, but Ireland and the um, kind of the UK and taking away Scot- Scotland in that. But Japan can kind of be included in those boards. But even then we want to compete with Centauri about the popularity of our brand. We kind of feel like we could fit into that category when it's coming to make a great highball or just drinking it neat in that sense. And couple of weeks ago we got some really great news that we were distillery of the year from san francisco wine and spirits competition i hate to talk about awards i could tr- i truly do but the only reason why i talk about it a because my team tells me i have to talk about it now um and b it's a validation for our founder dave vitale who i mentioned earlier and then his number one hire back 15 years ago sam slaney who's our head of operations at our distillery back in melbourne it shows them like hey they're doing something right they gambled everything like dave put everything he had financially into this brand um, emotionally into this brand his kids grew up in that distillery over in melbourne before they moved to the united states a few years ago it was all like a passion project it was a financial investment that he took on and sam was the first guy that said yeah i'll jump aboard and go on this ride with you and he's been with them ever since so to see those two be able to go to go to this award show in san francisco and accept that and just have these giant smiles on these face on their faces while they're wearing velvet velour suits matching suits as well which was fantastic um it was so it was so great for them like cheered up that whole entire night was bummed i couldn't make it out there but i had another event going on i think here in chicago um but immediately was like called them text them emailed them like all the all of you know the heartfelt messages i could possibly conjure up in my head because it shows like people are recognizing that star ward is a brand to compete in this market it's good whiskey um something different from people to enjoy but bourbon lovers can like it rye drinkers can enjoy it obviously single malt drinkers can enjoy it scotch fans are kind of catching on to like hey this little distillery out there is doing some interesting things that we do as a brand they or as a drinker you can acknowledge where double pot still distillation um all single malt malting all the barley and everything but then it's this new technique of putting it in red wine casts yeah we have brands like 
Avalau or, Sp- or, or um, Glenn Farquist that have been doing this forever, Glenn Dronach, putting them into, you know, 100% red wine cask and letting them mature in there, sometimes blending them with bourbon barrels to make their, to make their whiskeys. But no one's doing red wine maturation that the right we were doing with about, I think, 15,000 red wine casks now fully maturing whiskey at our two facilities. So people, you know, I've, I've been out there for three and a half years peddling this, talking on the old interwebs about it, talking about it in person. Our team has grown. When I first started, it was literally just my boss and I, and we were flying across the country, missing each other in every other city and just promoting the brand as much as we possibly could. And from then it grew to my counterpart, Katrina, who is our brand ambassador out in the East Coast, who's situated in New York. And now we have nine to 10 people in our US team three years later. So I think the numbers itself just kind of helps people grow the brand and we're developing and putting a lot of input into our marketing as well when it comes to a uh, us press. Yeah. So you, there, there's like four different things that I've got to circle back to. Yeah. I'm going to start. Um, you mentioned Katrina uh, on the East coast and it's, it's, it's sort of funny. There's, there's another podcast, uh, a podcaster that I'm friends with. His name is David Levine and he has whiskey in my wedding ring. And he and I apparently are running parallel lives right now. We, we communicate over uh, direct message all the time. I've met him in person a couple of times. He actually has her joining him on an episode in a couple of weeks. And it seems like either he has a guest right before I do, or I have one right before he does from the exact same brands. And we're not talking about it at all. Um, and it, so it gives me a little bit of confidence that, you know, I'm seeking out the right people because he knows what he's doing. And um, he's got, he's got an incredible talent. I'm just sort of here to have fun conversations with people. Um, right. But what was, what was the award that they got from, um, what was the award you guys just got? Oh, it's from San Francisco wine and spirits competition, um, world spirits competition, which is kind of like the granddaddy of them all for that. Yep. It's, it's, you know, like being inducted into like a hall of fame or the Grammys, if you will, is a kind of a good way to, uh, put a parallel line to it. Um, and we won distillery of the year. So we were the most awarded distillery, which, you know, means a few different things. A, you have to enter that, that competition. You right. got to pay for each individual whiskey or spirit to be judged which there's a flat rate fee for that but we you know we weren't afraid to put all these things in there and be judged if you will and by a panel of people who consider themselves experts and who we consider experts when it comes to having great palettes and i think we won 12 double golds which means every every judge said this is a gold medal winner and then Mm -hmm. three other golds with our whiskeys and um you know some of our core spirits were in there some of our single barrels won that and then at the end of the day we were uh awarded with the distillery of the year yeah and that's that's the main reason i wanted to go back to it is a few episodes i don't know maybe a couple months ago i talked about the different awards uh awards companies that exist and san francisco is obviously one of them and you know getting a double gold is obviously a huge honor but to be able to get enough of these awards in one year to be able to be distillery of the year right because you were you you know, you said you hate talking about the awards and, and maybe you hate talking about a double gold, but there's no reason you should hate talking about distillery of the year because that's not one that's given to ever, you know, like you can't have 47 distilleries of the year. You have one, you may have 47 double golds, but distillery of the year, that's, that's a thing you can kind of hang your badge on and, and realize that you're, you're growing the quality of, of whatever it is that you guys are putting out. So don't, don't, don't knock on it too hard. Um, but do you think that, you know, because one of the things that I noticed, you know, when we're, we're, we're paying attention during the pandemic um, to everyone's online presence and what they're doing. And, and you guys were there. Y'all, y'all were um, mixing it up with, 
just about anyone who would listen um and you know just trying to f find a way to maintain interaction with the consumer and um you, from from listening to your podcast um key in the lake which is fantastic and anybody should listen to it who's into whiskey obviously um but they you prefer in person, right? You, you prefer being able to sit down and have these conversations with people. But um, there was something about um, your presence, your, your, your company's presence in the online forum in a, in a time when we couldn't that just said, we still want to interact with people. Like we just want to interact with folks. And, and I think that may be what's paying dividends and, and you're showing this significant growth in the last, you know, six months to a year, um, to me, it feels like those things kind of go hand in hand. Uh, just it's, it's part of the ethos of who you guys are. Yeah. It was also part of a way to keep my job too. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 my wife works in social media marketing. Um, she used to work for beam Centauri for about six, five, six years and over the pandemic as well. So, you know, we were bouncing ideas with each other right away. And she's like, I mean, she, you might see Beam steal some of my ideas out there, actually. But, um, you know, we were kind of <laughs> going around was, if it was the podcast, if it was our brands, because Callum um, at the time worked for Abelauer as their brand ambassador here in Chicago. Um, Wilson at the time was with the Union Horse, and now he works for Castle and Key. So it was anything about, like, keeping our brands relevant. And for me, I just wrote up a business plan uh, for my bosses. And like, we can do a whole virtual experience. It's going to cost money. But, hey, we aren't doing in-store tastings. We aren't going to do $2,000, dollars whiskey shows across the United States. Let's take that budget and start mm -hmm. to adhere it and enter, uh, integrate it into the online space because people are there. I mean, if you step outside of the whiskey world, people were developing TV shows on Instagram live. People were developing dating shows on Instagram live. They were doing zoom like comedy shows that I mean, interesting to watch, I guess if you're like a delay and all that kind of thing. But for us, I thought about we can still be relevant in this space. This doesn't mean we can't, mm -hmm. we have to go away. We can actually probably harness the crowd and gain, um, garner even a bigger following because people can still buy whiskey. Liquor shops, liquor stores are still open. There's online delivery platforms. So, I just thought, like, why can't we do these virtual tastings uh, all over the place? And we had some local retailers here in Chicago that are willing to ship across state lines, you know, and take the penalty if it might happen. Oh, and we started <laughs> working with some uh, DTC websites um, mm -hmm. about ship making our whiskey available online through our um, <clears throat> through our website. So I just was like, all right, I'll just go. Like, I had this crowd from the podcast, then I'll just kind of slowly, I guess, convert them into Star Wars fans, not trying to do it. I guess like, you know, sneakily or anything like that, but I'm just going to use the platform platform for both because what else are we going to do? We're just sitting at home and we just started doing these virtual tastings. We had the budgets between all three of us, between Callum Wilson and I to do some pretty mm -hmm. cool tastings. We are like, Hey, let's invite 30 people on. Let's send some samples out, put them in a cool kit, throw some stickers in there, throw some pins in there, jump on zoom and chat for two, three, four hours and see where the night takes us. So yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a direct response to the pandemic. Obviously, so many brands did it. If they weren't doing it, I'm not sure what they were waiting for. I did see some people kind of come onto the game like a year and a half in. I'm like, it's probably a little too late to be launching the virtual thing. <laughs> they're going they're, they're just, they're just but, playing catch up. They're, they're playing yeah, catch up. Yeah. And, you know, no, but I just like was talking to my friends about what you're going to do, how are we going to do it. And one of the coolest things about it was, you know, as, as a brand ambassador, but also somebody who runs a whiskey podcast, I could bring my friends along and do it that way. So it wasn't just Abelauer, Union Horse, and Star Wars. We had 
other brands like brands like St. George um, happen, helping with us, um, with other friends um, involving their brands. Um, Second War comes to mind right away and just doing some fun things for people that are out there that are still listening to us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you said that you were trying to find a way to keep your job, but I've 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 been in a position in my past where I'm doing just enough to keep my job versus doing something that I'm passionate about. And, and I may be way off base, but it came more across the lines of, yeah, you're trying to keep your job, but you're trying to keep your job because you're passionate about the things you're doing. So what you're willing to do and sincerity and, and, you know, genuine nature of what you're doing kind of comes across. It's not like uh, I did see a ton of other brands trying to be in the space, but it very much felt like treading water to me. Like they were just, we're, 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 we're marking time until we can be back in person. Whereas um, it felt like you and, and the folks that you were working with were really just interested in, yeah, you, you, you want to maintain s- some sort of connection with the consumer, but you still have a degree of passion about what you're doing, you know, wanting to educate people. If, even if you can only reach 30 people, it's still 30 people more than you could reach sitting at the house. Oh yeah. Thank, and first of all, thank you. I do. Thanks for recognizing that. I mean, I have a passion for whiskey, there's other brands that I've worked for that I don't know I would if I would have followed through the way I did um, mm-hmm. as I did with the pandemic over over COVID with Star Wars to promote that. So uh, thanks for recognizing that because there's there is a great passion of whiskey, but there's also a passion for our brand. Um, I consider my boss, the founder of Star Wars, a friend more than an actual employer. When I say like, mm-hmm. hey, I'll bring my boss to an event or like, hey, this is my boss. Dave is introducing the people. He's like, shut up like you know whatever um just kind of watches it watches it off because he's just a regular dude that happens to own a cool distillery but uh yeah you know there's a huge passion for whiskey um it's been a part of my life for a really long time been working in this industry now for like eight straight years or something like that and uh there's a lot of love for it there's also a lot of love for like the online community because that's how you essentially build your space these days as if you're you're recording a podcast if you're running an instagram page so the two just kind of evenly went together which is really unique um i think for most people because i was online way too much probably over the pandemic <laughs> you know you step back a little bit like and the, our parks were closed our running paths were closed like i feel like our streets were closed half the time um it's like we can't really go do anything outside and so many fridays i remember getting done with work and my wife would be like oh it's you know it's 3 30 on a friday close the computers and like well, there's nothing else to do. So let's go see if anybody's doing Instagram live or like see right. if you can pop on to get a part of a conversation. But yeah, it's, I think passion definitely drove all that over the last few years. Um, without a passion, I think for whatever you're doing in life, it's hard to kind of keep going. Um, I've been there where all of a sudden one day I'm just like, I have to quit this job now. And if I don't quit it today, I'm never going to quit it or I'm not going to be happy. But mm-hmm. also with that was like months of developing a plan to to quit and then follow through with something different. I think you should probably have a plan when you're going to actually quit your job and not just, you know, say I'm done, I'm out of here. Right. Do the whole, uh, you know, a half baked exit, if you will. Um, cool. I'm out. Yes. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm on board with that. Yeah. And it, it, you're, you're not wrong. You know, like having a good plan to kind of, you know, exit out is, is pretty vital uh, because it, yeah. it alleviates a lot of that, that stress that can come along with being a part of something pretty terrible. Um, and you guys put off a vibe and maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here. Um, I work in, in technology and specifically in ag technology uh, working in software. And I, I work for uh, what could be equivocated as a startup. You know, it's a, it's a tech startup and has been that way for a little while. Um, 
you guys feel very much like a startup. And the fact that you're talking about the founder is more of a friend. Um, mm. You guys, you know, it's your boss, that relationship, it exists, but um, you, you know his name and he knows your name and he probably knows your favorite color and maybe what your favorite drink is, which doesn't happen in a lot of industries. Do you think that is part of the reason why you're drawn to it? Like, are you drawn to that sort of startup-y bootstraps nature or it just fit because of the people? Yeah, definitely. I've only had like one job in my life where it was a corporate job, if you will. And even then I was still a contractor. So I kind of had my own freelancing to it in a way, but mm -hmm. I've worked for art galleries that are just starting. I've worked for numerous whiskey brands that are just starting breweries and all that. I love that foundation of built on. We have a plan, we have a passion, but we don't know what's going to happen at the end of the day, but we have a why of what we're built into our brand of there is a core focus to it. And star Wars definitely fits right in there. It's like my, I started, obviously they were approaching 12 years old as a brand, but only been selling whiskey for, I think less than eight years at that point, because we didn't sell anything until a drop was barrel aged for almost four years. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., it only been there for like a month. <laughs> it barely existed here. And but I met my boss at a whiskey show um, in March of 2019. And we just kind of hit it off. And an hour later, basically, we were having beers over at Goose Island and offered me a job. And I actually had a couple other positions I was applying for at the time and interviewing with and had some offers. But when it came down to t thinking about it over the weekend and talking to my wife about it and talking to friends about it, it seemed like the perfect fit because they were doing something truly different and there was a different atmosphere to it where, like you said, my boss already, like we already had this like built in core relationship that felt very familiar, felt very friendly. Um, but also it felt like there would be this professional platform for us to kind of build, uh, build a better relationship, not just as friends, but kind of as professionals too, in that sense and go out there and execute this plan he had to bring this Australian whiskey to the rest of the world and kind of felt right into that. I was like, all right, I'm ready for a new challenge in life, but got to try the whiskey first a few more times to make sure it's good. So it, it was confusing because it's a weird whiskey. I mean, it's a single malt from Australia. Mm -hmm. Just think about that in the first place. And you're putting it to Shiraz barrels. You're putting the Pinot Noir barrels, Cabernet cast, let them barrel age, and then you blend them together. And I'm like, okay, well, this time I had like a honey, ginger, spicy taste to it. So next time I had more of like a strawberry vanilla taste to it. There's always like kind of like core peppery spiciness in there. Mm -hmm. I'm like this is weird. And like, I would try it to my friends like Wilson. I remember we were sitting at Delilah's one night and I was kind of mingling over him. I'm like, I'm to hate this job. And I'm, he, I'm like, have you had it yet? He's like, no, let me try it. So I gave him, got him a pour of it. He's like, damn, this is really good. I'm like, okay, so it's not just me. Like it is good whiskey. And <laughs> it is good yeah. out there. And um, yeah. And I remember talking to my wife and she's like, this is like, this is a no brainer. Like this is everything you're, it's all about. Like you want something new. You love new challenges. It's a brand you can truly believe in and it fits you as your personality, as somebody who's never content and always moving and looking for something better or more to explore. So yeah, kind of a good relationship there. And you know, like it's cool when you're boss and you can go out and to Nashville for a night and have a long, long night. And next morning you're like, fun times. Yep. Yeah. One in Nashville. You're like, all right, one in Nashville, buddy. And the night ends there and then you go on, do your sales calls, sell some single barrels and then go repeat the next night. So I'm going to, I'm going to assume you're saying you might have some single barrels sold into the Nashville market. Is, is that a correct statement? We do. Yeah. We actually have, um, I want to say about a handful now down there. Um, oh, sweet. yeah, kind of nothing actually in Nashville. It's all like Franklin, 
um spring hill kind of down that area but yeah a few other ones out there some some and some really cool uh single barrels that are 100 wheat whiskey which is a little bit off the beaten path what we do but we do have one wheat one wheat whiskey called twofold which is a blend of wheat and malted barley and this year or kind of at the end of last year we started introducing wheat single barrels to the u.s market we had eight of those and i believe two of them are down in nashville area yeah. The reason I ask is Nashville is the closest metropolitan area to where I live. It's only about a two hour drive. So now I'm just kind of knocking on my list here. Like I need to do, go to Frank, Franklin and slash spring Hill, um, mm-hmm. pick up some, some bottles. I've got to go get some other stuff from a local group in Nashville that I want to pick up anyway. So I'm just adding, nice. the, well, there goes my paycheck. So that's super fantastic. You know, it happens this is to that, us all the time. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's a regular situation. And honestly, that's the main reason that I started the podcast so I can excuse buying bottles and just having one hand. My wife's like, why do you have these? It's for the podcast. Even this doesn't make any, this is not a, this is not it's a beautiful a, backdrop. Exactly. That's, that's all it's for there. Um, so, so you've, you mentioned through, through the course of this last couple minutes, you've, you've worked in art galleries, breweries, distilleries, whiskey brands, like, but you came from Des Moines, you mm-hmm. went to Drake, like, how do you end up here? How does Jake get to where Jake is today? And, you know, go as, as deep or shallow as you want to on that. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I really like that question because it is a long, complex answer, I guess, in that sense. And it goes back to, what I said, at the very beginning of this podcast from Des Moines, all I ever wanted to do was get out. Didn't never traveled as a kid, but um, traveled through through reading um, novels, reading stories. Uh, you know, some of your favorite authors you'd think of, like Steinbeck and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gerald, um, all of the great writers of America that you could find these explorations through their pages and through their words, and that just kind of caught along to that and started got the travel bug early on and by the time i could start affording to travel a little bit in college just kind of took off with that and day after i graduated college i went and had a burrito with my best friend went skateboarding and then got my car and drove to new mexico and uh, worked in an art gallery with a family member who owned an art gallery down there and just needed some help and i'd spent my summers down there uh, hanging out and was like well I uh, just gradu- graduated journalism school in 2009. The housing crash made everything terrible, and all magazines and newspapers are also crashing. So uh, there's not a lot of journalism opportunities out there. So sure, I'll go try to sell some art for like ten thousand dollars to people that don't have money to spend art on money on, but for art. But you know, it all worked out eventually, and I right. kind of got this job um, through a family friend as a part-time job doing event planning basically i was like a roadie for events and for a corporate company and was traveling all over the country and was one time gig turned into five years of traveling across the country and going to every major market seeing people from every walk of life you could possibly think of and having conversation with them with them and really just seeing the world and started to go internationally traveling through that as you develop points and all that kind of crazy stuff while flying every day of your life, pretty much it felt like. And mm-hmm. um, just kind of one thing that sums it up really well at these travels, I was coming back home to Chicago from California and, you know, it was like 20, by 25, 26 at the time. Didn't really have anything to come back for. The girlfriend I moved to Chicago for broke up with me and you're like, why am I going back to my one bedroom apartment in Chicago and I can just go do whatever I want. And then we're sitting in Salt Lake city in my connection. Like, well, I'm just gonna see if there are any flights to Portland, go to Portland for the weekend, go do some hiking, hang out and like a little 
basically Oceanside Hotel in Newport, New, uh, Newport, uh, Oregon, and just go hiking in every every direction each day. So did that and just hung out and you know found that'd be a better time and just sitting in your apartment lonely, thinking about uh, those uh, those lost thoughts, those girls. You know, you could have had at one point in your life, but. Um, everything worked out in the long end with, you know, eventually met my wife in Chicago. So it all worked out why I came here, but yeah, it was just something for me was I wanted to do something different with my life. I never wanted to sit in this content, um, you know, sofa chair of life and basically raise kids at 30 and do all these other things and kind of, uh, explore things for myself. So I just kept going and going. And eventually all of these travels I was doing for, for work, I just got really into craft beer and started writing, for some craft beer websites and doing photography along the way. I've always been a photographer and graphic designer and um, started designing some stuff for some small breweries and doing some photography work. And then in 2015, I was like, this whole whiskey thing seems to be catching on. And not like, I'm not talking about the big brands, the big bourbon brands out there, but it was right. these craft brands um, in my area. I'm talking more specifically about journeyman few Koval. They were like, wow, these guys are like doing something really cool. It's like, two-year-old whiskey that tastes good actually and so eventually i went and applied for a job at coval and worked part-time there for a couple months and then uh, eventually got onto this full-time gig and the catalyst behind all of that was really my grandfather um he was an engineer at jim beam and he was there for like 15 20 years in the late 80s it's the 2005 and retired in 05 but there's all these stories I kept hearing from him about the people he worked with and these luminaries of the whiskey industry that seemed really important at the time. But when you're a kid, you don't really know when you're 15, 16, you have no idea still. And then when you get like 21 and 23, 24, 25, you start to understand like the complexity of his job. And I start talking to my uncle who was also an engineer and he talks about how like my grandpa transformers distillery and still in your early twenties, you don't really understand what that means. But then you start mm -hmm. getting into whiskey and I started reading about whiskey. History has always been a big passion of mine. So any whiskey book I can get my hands on, I'm reading about it. Next thing you kind of know, I'm turning like 26, 27. I'm really interested in whiskey. And I start putting together the idea that the pieces together that, oh, like he's talking about like Booker. No, he's talking about like Baker Beam and like mm -hmm. all of these very important people when it came to the whiskey industry that were his friends, his colleagues, people he worked with on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you start to kind of understand like, oh, my grandpa like basically helped revolutionize Jim Beam into a, or bring it into a modern company. Like when he first started, they were using ropes still like to measure the mash tanks. <laughs> like this is right. like the early nineties. It's crazy. And like, that's because nobody was buying bourbon. Nobody was buying mm -hmm. American whiskey at the time. And I, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that seems really cool. And so the first time I got to bring him, a whiskey that I worked with, I worked for it was a great opportunity, really special moment between him and I. Of course, I brought up my bourbon from Koval, who I worked with, and he's like, well, it's not bourbon, it's not making Kentucky. It's like, all right, <laughs> I'm gonna fight the stigma with a guy who actually knows the rules of bourbon. Um, but he, he right. enjoyed it, um, probably more enjoyed it more just because he got to see that his grandson was working for a distillery and seemed to have uh, the bug that he had for whiskey. And he had many jobs. He didn't retire until he was like 75, 76 years old. He's 93, 94 now and be working if he could. And he just uh, he always said that Jim Beam was the best days of his life. So kind of where it all comes together with him um, after me traveling all around the world and traveling around the United States and trying all these great beers and then trying all these great whiskey started popping up in like 2014, 2015, just kind of all stuck together and got a job and, here we are now. It seems like you're riding the, the wave of, it, it feels like you're right on the front end of understanding like where, 
American consumers are going because you, you touched on the, the, the craft beer thing and the craft beer thing kind of, kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit. My dad started home brewing, you know, 25 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, we, when we traveled uh, as a family, it would always be like, Oh, you know, like let's go somewhere where there's a microbrewery. Let's go somewhere where there's, you know, opportunity to try different things. And this is before I could drink, you know, like he, he yeah. just wanted to go and experience it. And then once I was able to drink, it's was like, yeah, we'll go and we'll, we'll kind of experience these things. And then there's this, this sort of tipping point that happens where, um, you know, craft beer is still a big thing. It's not gone anywhere, but there's this new thing that's starting to happen. It's bourbon, right? And bourbon's kind of on this upward trend. And I think that bourbon is headed the same place craft uh, beer was, is the fact that it's still widely popular, but there's something else on the edge of kind of like stealing a little bit of its thunder. And it feels like, I don't want to say alternative whiskey. That's not the right <laughs> term, but like, craft whiskey slash alternative single malts and so think thinking about what you guys do thinking about what craft distilleries do um people having a more human connection with the thing that they consume i feel like that's kind of on the upward trend as well you know you see all these craft distilleries popping up and you see um single malts popping up from a number of other countries than scotland or um, england or ireland or japan right or taiwan right. for that matter right you know you've yeah. got those kind of big players that exist but you start seeing other countries pop up with uh, single malt whiskeys or other types of whiskey and it feels like it feels like we're on the precipice of that and you know your current job is now working in you know, australian single malts um it says like we're on the precipice of kind of just exploding out the category instead of building up the main brands. We're going to explode out the rest of them. That's my layman's interpretation of what's going on. You work in the industry every day, so you could be like, nah, that's stupid. You're completely wrong no, there. You're right. You're right for sure. I mean, it's interesting now how our lives have been co so consumed by social media and by technology that our phones, you know, it can't be more than a foot away from us. or we feel like we're like without a limb. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but like, but this all started, I think, a long time ago. I mean, the iPhone's been out since what, 2007? Mm -hmm. People wanted to get back to working with their hands. I mean, Portlandia made millions of dollars on making fun of it every single day, but right. you know, and every bit of a joke, there's an ounce of truth to it. And there was yeah. more than an ounce of truth there because people wanted to get back to something that they enjoyed, something they had passion for, where they could build it with their hands. And it wasn't about, being concentrated behind a computer every day of their lives. And so I saw all of these distilleries, know a lot of these owners, know a lot of these distillers, a lot of these makers that were like, I just want to do something different with my life. I didn't want to do what my parents did. Nothing wrong mm -hmm. with that. Like my parents are both educators and teachers, amazing parents that raised me in an awesome family where I had, you know, food on my plate every night. And, but at the same time, it's like, that's just not for me. Like, maybe I'll take a risk right. and maybe I'll go out there and make $30,000 a year, live in a crappy apartment, just escape. But you know what? I go home happy at the end of the night each time. I leave that shift if you're a distiller and you just worked a 12-hour shift from 12, 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. I know those. I know a lot of those guys left with a smile on their face because they could see what they're building. They're a part of something new, a part of something that could develop its own legacy. And so many of these brands talk about that. They like They see what all these legacy brands have done since 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, post-prohibition, and developing something to leave behind for their family. It's almost like a love letter that they're leaving behind for the next generation to enjoy. And these craft brands are going right there. You know, in their 2010, 2012, we had a few hundred American whiskeys distilleries. Now we have over 2,000 distilleries. People obviously caught that bug. Is it a trend? Absolutely. Is there a money grab involved with that? Some people, 100%. Always, yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of passion out there. There's a lot of people that are like, I just want to explore something alternative 
than what I thought I was supposed to do as an 18 year old to go to college, commit to a, a major, graduate four years later with a hundred thousand dollars plus in, in debt, and then go off and live your life. And like, how do I enjoy that? Like, what, what is the purpose of that if I don't have any meaning behind it? And so I know a lot, a lot of these brands were just like, I don't even know if it, a whiskey distillery is going to be the thing at the end of the day, but I just want to do something that's going to be built into this community, built in something creative and have some passion built around it at the end of the day. And like build that, build those kind of three things into the ethos of a company. Um, that's what happened with like Koval. That's what happened with a journeyman. I mean, like, I know Bill went to Scott, or the owner of journeyman went to Scotland to basically be a golf pro and learn how to, run a golf course and do all that. And he just started drinking with scotch over there and was like, Hmm, this is interesting. And then he actually went to down to Australia and studied at with Bill Lark at Lark distilling the same distillery where Dave, our founder uh, mm -hmm. learned how to be a distiller, came back to America. Didn't even know what to do. Goes to Koval and be like, Hey, you guys are starting a distillery. Can I use your still before Koval even used their still bill ran the very first batch of uh, Chicago that, uh, to still a first batch of whiskey in Chicago for post prohibition, um, legally anyway. Um, right. and it became the Ravenswood Rye, which was like a trade, a trademark for them. And then a trademark that was sued by the Ravenswood community, um, to journeymen. They don't call it that anymore, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's like these guys, like, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I just want to do something different, something that, uh, I can make with my hands and show it off to the community. Yeah. And you, I mean, you're definitely right there because you can find those stories across, you know, bourbon pretty prolifically. The folks that worked in, you know, Silicon Valley or yeah. in, um, you know, politics even, and they've, you know, finally given up and they, they want to go after something they can create with their hands. Even if they're not distilling, they're creating their own blends, their own, you know, they're going out and selecting barrels. There's like this mixture of, you know, alchemy is the best way to describe it mm. because it's like this mixture of science and art that kind of comes together and creates this, this unique thing. And, you know, what you're identifying, I had this conversation, you know, so I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the, the younger end of generation X. And I was talking to a guy who was on the older end of generation X and you're squarely rooted in a millennial slash Gen Z type uh, mentality where, you know, the, the boomers, your identity was based off of your ability to provide, like you have a job, that's everything you are. And then whenever our generation came around, we were very antithetical to that, but in the sense of we're just not going to do anything or we'll, mm. you know, we're not going to identify ourselves that way, but we still kind of fall into that trap. But you get into millennials and, and, and generation Z, you're going to try to find something that makes you happy. You know, like this is just something that you can attach yourselves to because um, we, we, Boomers were made happy by their job. Generation X was made ha happy by the money that they made from their job to go do something fun. Mm. And, and and millennials and Gen Z look at it like, why can't I do both? Why can't I make money while also being happy? Those two things should merge together. I think that's an appropriate place to be. I think that's a good place to be specifically in uh, whiskey because it kind of pays through. And, you know, you mentioned there's, there's money grabs in this craft whiskey game. And absolutely. <laughs> but people wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't interest here and there's interest here because people are connect consumers are connecting with it right so yeah you're going to have those people but that's a sign of good things that's a sign yeah. that people are interested in what you've got going on and so we've kind of we've we've gone down a pretty pretty significant rabbit hole here and so i'm gonna keep I'm going gonna keep, yeah I'm, I'm here so you you said uh you didn't travel much as a kid and you you did a lot of traveling through books right so mm -hmm. um, you mentioned some some authors here in steinbeck and fitzgerald and a host of other people what's 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 the favorite book? Like, what is the book that 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 
that Jake has read more than once and might read regularly? Uh, I probably, well, a favorite book of all time is Into the Wild by John Krakauer. Also one of my favorite movies of all time too, uh, which really brought that identity of exploration upon me, if you will. Not that I wanted to find myself as a traveler or explorer, whatever that might be, but it gave me this itch to go find something greater in life than Mm -hmm. just what's in front of me. So I probably revisit that book every few years. I, but I also read, um, I probably read the great Gatsby every year. I go back and just quick read, you know, it's 160 pages, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of gets you into the mindset of how tragic love can be and how we can be, <laughs> if we don't kill our ego and take a step back and redefine ourselves sometimes, then uh, our ego will literally kill us. So there's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned that. Um, yeah. And like John Steinbeck novels, Corbin McCarthy, Car- McCarthy, um, some of the, like my writing heroes in that sense, but John Krakauer probably, I mean, you know, with into the wild and every other book he's put out, uh, one of my favorite authors out there, but yeah, into the wild is something I revisit the movie at least once a year. Um, and go back and just, it was kind of a, it was a coll- collision of so many favorite things in my life, uh, back in 2007 when that movie came out. Um, Eddie Vedder, you know, helped produce it. One of my favorite musicians, Sean Penn, just like all around badass of cinema. It's like mm-hmm. cool. He's involved with this and, and doing it all together. One of my favorite books, and then Emil Hirsch is one of my favorite actors of all time. And my shorter hair, we used to get comparisons to each other, even though I think I can I'm see like, it. So I, I, I was getting ready. I was getting, yeah. getting ready to make that statement because I can absolutely see the the similarities exists there yeah we uh i think i'm like a foot taller than him probably but um yeah he is a short dude he's short like yeah he's, i saw him in person one time he was pretty short um but yeah we said like a wild crazy hair kind of like big and curly and fluffy all that stuff so yeah it was just all this collision that came together to kind of create this really great movie and i know like reading up on the movie that john krakauer and sean penn wouldn't do the wouldn't do the movie unless they had the family's approval and Eddie Vedder was involved yeah. in decision making too. And I really respected that. Like one of my favorite scenes of that entire movie is when Christopher McCandless's dad is like sitting in the street and pulling his shoes off and crying when he realizes his son has died and takes him back into this like childhood perspective, not just about his, his mindset, but the way the camera's angled and makes him look so small, but so big as a human being at the same time. And just lets go of that whole entire guard. And he's crying right in the middle of his suburban home and suburban neighborhood where like, that's what, Christopher didn't want in his life, he wanted to shed that as much as possible. But then his, his father is finally vulnerable enough as an individual just to like let go and then it's to be a human being, almost like he was being baptized in those tears and then also in that sunlight too in that day. Um, this is a powerful movie. Um, if I talk about it too much, I'll probably start tearing up, but uh, yeah, along with that, hey. just one, yeah, yeah, so good, no, no, good stuff right there. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, I think I may have to end there because there's not really a better plate. Like you, you've got all of the quotes, you know, kill the ego before it kills you and, <laughs> you know, baptized in tears. Like the, the imagery you just created, I, I I need to be done now. I can't, I can't say any more than that. Um, I, I think you mentioned, did you mention Cormac McCarthy, like the on the road or yeah, the road? Yeah. That, okay. That dude's got some really dark riding, like some, some dark, dark riding. Man, if you live in the desert for long enough and you get what the des- desert's all about down there, you can start to relate in some very odd ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, living in Santa Fe for about a year and a half, kind of like two years accumulatively, um, it would you're like, oh, right, I get this weirdness, this stillness, this darkness that's out here. Like when it's dark, you can't see in front of you. Like you can't see your hand in front of your right. face. There's no lights out there. So uh, it's a strange place. But yeah, the road is 
great book great movie um i mean so many different things he's written over the years that all the pretty horses series uh, is absolutely amazing but yeah um yeah that guy was kind of one of those lessons that i was so i was a writer in college and kind of you always use those skills um somewhat in my professional career i feel like ever since then but uh, i was just reading an article about him one time and he was so poor i can't remember which book he was writing at the time but he was a really young writer and he was so poor that he waited for like to get uh like free toothpaste samples in the mail and you know like probably couldn't afford his rent couldn't do anything in life but he taught himself or told himself wherever he learned this lesson from was whatever you start finish no matter how bad it is or how poor you might think it is to yourself if you finish it at the end of the day you can be proud that you actually finished it and that's kind of one of those lessons i took with me um from like 21 22 kind of on in my life it's like you know what i might hate a project i'm working on i might be literally sweeping up floors and mopping a floor after an hour tour in a distillery and don't want to be here right now but just do the best of your ability and finish your job. And hopefully that will lead to something better in your life if you want it. Yeah. It, you're definitely not wrong there. And it's, you know, not nearly as, as romantic, but you know, a handful of years ago I was working a project in software and I absolutely hated it and absolutely wanted to be out of it. Um, <laughs> but I had that, you know, sort of that dutiful sense of, I at least need to finish this before I think about, you know, whatever's next. And right. someone actually approached me and was like, Hey, are you interested in coming work, at, you know, work for me, you know, on, on X, Y, Z, which sounded significantly more interesting than what I was working on at the time. I was like, God, I really want to go, but I didn't, I was like, Nope, I need to finish what I'm working on now. And it ended up panning out into the appropriate thing. Right. Mm. Like I, I, I did the yeoman's work and finished the, monotonous terrible horrible thing that no one should ever have to do and came out the other end with something that was sort of appropriate and so you know it can often feel a little bit like self-flagellation but it was it was the right thing right and yeah. and you know whether it's some sort of cosmic intervention or statistical probability or whatever thing you know uh, things seem to to work out in the end um I'm trying to think of what i want to ask next no, that's a good point. I think it's a good prideful and the new, a new, like, um, I guess form of art that recently reminded me of that was, have you seen the bear on Hulu? Oh my. Look, man. Okay. So <laughs> I worked a number of different restaurant jobs in college yeah. and one of my really good friends is a criminal defense attorney in Northern Kentucky. And he worked at some of the same restaurants that I worked at and we watched it separately from each other. And he sent me a message the other day that was like, Watching this television show has put me in a place where I want to like just lay down my law license and open up some sketchy restaurant yeah. somewhere and see what happens. And right. I'm like, man, it is, it is, it's super dangerous because there's a connection to the passion that exists in those type of people that is almost impossible to replicate. And oh, yeah. I, I've told my wife a number of times, like if I could make the money that I make now <laughs> working in a restaurant, I would, but I would have to take significant risk to get there as well. Cause I would have to own the restaurant. I mean, I, I don't make like crazy money, but where do you live in Western Kentucky in a town with a population of 20,000 and make more than $10 an hour working in a restaurant? You don't, right? right? So you have to own the restaurant to make anything, but yeah, I love that show. That was yeah. that's, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And it's, it's so spot on. I've, you know, been able to hang out some pretty cool restaurants in the world and um the country we actually partnered up with michelin um star Wars did this past year so got to go to some pretty cool places and you can meet some 
pretty intense people and some pretty passionate people at the same uh, same time. And yeah, I get like everything that he was trying to shed from his prior experiences of working at the very top restaurants in the world to coming back to this family structure of a restaurant, little hole in the wall and try to incorporate something new and something more uh, desirable for every person that works inside of the restaurant industry and not just go repeat the old and go into that same format formation of like, Hey, we're going to yell, we're going to scream. We're going to be almost like militaristic in our style of making food because uh, probably every person in that kitchen or someone who goes down that line is they enter the food world because they have passion for it. And they just lose that passion because you get consumed by, by the culture and it can be a negative or it can be a positive culture. And he's trying to reinforce the positive, but at the one of the end of those, one of the episodes, he was cleaning everything and, you know, he's comes from doing, being a, a, a four star Michelin, three star Michelin chef and running the best restaurants in the world. And now he's cleaning this little mom and pop shop in Chicago after like no one respects the tools that he has, the knowledge that he has, um, what he can bring to it. And he's just, but he's doing it most per- persistently way possible because he still has passion and care for what he does on a day-to-day basis. And it took me back to like literally mopping our distillery floors after a tour. It's nine 30 at night, just worked eight, nine, 10 hour day, still have a 20 minute bike ride home. And you're like, you know, I could leave it for the next person to do it the next morning, but is that fair? You know, like do your job, do you what, do what you can. If you do love this thing, maybe down the road, you'd be doing something better. And that's kind of like I tell myself a lot of times while working for some smaller brands, making less money. And then, you know, eventually you meet this weird Australian dude at a whiskey festival and you're traveling over to Australia to hang out in a distillery. And next thing you know, you're, you're talking about uh, Australian single malt all across the United States. Right. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's cosmic intervention. It's some statistical improbability. It's, it's whatever I, you, you can attribute it to whatever you want to attribute it to. But um, at some point you have to be receptive to acknowledging the statistics or paying attention to the universe or doing whatever, right? Like you somehow you're, you're in tune with whatever kind of puts you there, but man, yeah, I, I'm I'm on the edge of needing to like buy a restaurant now and 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 move into a more passionate <laughs> line of work. Um, I enjoy what I work on, but man, that's um, it's pretty interesting. But it's it's not always, you know. I, I also remember the times where I'm working in a restaurant sort of sucked. You know, mm-hmm. like it it can feel like it sucks the life out of you. Have one shitty service, and then all of a sudden you're ready to you know burn the entire place down or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, so Been this there. is a this is, maybe this is a hard transition. I, w- I want to talk about episode 179. Okay. You know what episode 179 is of, of your podcast, Can the Lake? I, I don't. Remind okay. me. Okay. <laughs> so it's the it's the one where you talked about anxiety, right? Oh, so cool. I think I think it is in in as much as or as little as you want to. But I, I sent this to you and I've said this to a number of other people. Um it was to me, and considering what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, episode 179 from Key in the Lake uh, podcast was probably the most important whiskey podcast that you could listen to this year, without a doubt, without a doubt, just based off of the content, the rawness, the openness or whatever. But um, you, you, you were you were in a place, you were in a place and then you talked about it. And so share what you want about it or don't yeah. share anything you want about it. You know, just kind of it, you, you've got the stage here. No, I appreciate that. And thank you. That's really kind words right there. Um, yeah, it was, it's weird. I've never been a person who had anxiety I'm 30, I'll be 36 years old in two days and never really had anything I consider 
heightened anxiety at all. And some of those like little moments where like, hey, I'm about to like quit my job or like I just lost my job. Like, what am I going to do? Like normal moments where people have anxiety built into into their mind and the stress that's on them right there because you're not just dealing with like for my for me for example it's like not just me it's my wife that you have to you have to factor in too but um yeah all of a sudden like i said i've been someone who's traveled uh, a lot i've flown over a million miles fortunately in my life and seen really cool parts of the world and talked to various people and really amazing conversations and amazing outlets and cool restaurants, cool bars, cool beaches, all that kind of stuff and never took it for granted at all. But all of a sudden one day, um, almost a year exactly from now, I was sitting on a flight going back home from uh, a work trip in Seattle to flying into Indianapolis to my in-laws and was flying over the mountains connecting through Salt Lake City. And next thing I knew, like I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I didn't know what was going on. I'm looking out the window. I can't feel myself essentially, if that makes any sense to people who've ever had an anxiety attack. And um, but what I was doing, what I was experiencing was a panic attack in mid-flight. I didn't know it. Call myself down somehow, um, eventually to like get on another flight, which didn't happen on the connecting flight, weirdly enough. <laughs> um, but then it started to ramp up every time I traveled. And by the time the year ended in 2021, my my mind, my body would be crippled with anxiety days leading up to flying and even the day like after flying. By the time I got home from the airport and the podcast, I said I would lay on the couch and just be, feel like I'd feel safe because I'm at home. I'm on the ground, but I couldn't move. And I was so like just succumb to all the anxiety all the pressure that it took over my body that i didn't want to do anything else um it made me reevaluate a lot of different things in my life i was i'm somebody who totally supports therapy um in my early 20s struggling with therapy absolutely saved my life um just through the stresses i was going through in that time don't have to get into that but i've always told people like go to therapy. I've told people who are 65 years old, like you've never been to therapy, go to therapy, like try it out. Like don't knock it until you absolutely go and try it and help yourself. Like you help your body, help your mind as much as possible. And there's such stigma. There's a stigma of, of therapy, of having depression, of having anything psychologically wrong with you. Um, as we were growing up, as our parents were growing up, obviously one of the beautiful things about the internet, there's a lot of negative, there's a lot of positive that's helped spread or just help shed the stigma of, of, therapy being a bad thing or being a faux pas people are openly talking about it how it's how it helps their life how it saved their life and i just want to kind of contribute contribute to that conversation because i've known people who've killed themselves because anxiety because of panic people who didn't know what to do other than take their own life into effect um i'm not somebody who worships celebrities but god when anthony bourdain died that that hit me that i mean right now i'm i'm, I'm thinking about it like i know exactly where i was i was walking through cobalt distillery at 8 30 in the morning taking photos that i always do on a friday morning and one of the distillers came up to me and said you hear about anthony bourdain i was like what and i just i just knew like it was not good mm -hmm. like were, why, why would i hear about anthony bourdain on a month on a friday morning and I sat down on a case of bourbon and just sat there, just sat there for like 20 minutes. Um, and that's somebody who didn't reach out, didn't reach out to anybody, was going through a lot of shit and didn't reach out. So what I've always wanted to do is like help spread the word of like reach out. And that's why I wrote a post about it on Key in the Lake about his death um, later on, I think a year anniversary or the year, uh, yeah, I guess the year anniversary, whatever you want to call it of his um of his death about like hey reach out like i'm somebody to talk to i'm somebody to go on a walk with somebody to go on a run with 
And I thought I could control my anxiety. I could control the depression I was experiencing last year through working out. Cause I've always said that's one of my major um, medicines in life is working out. I run five miles in the morning, no matter how freaking cold it is here in Chicago. It's pretty stupid most times, but um, when it's, you know, like negative two and all of a sudden you can't feel uh, anything below your waist and you're like, Oh, I really should have uh, made just stayed inside and rode the bike today. Uh, rode the little Peloton thing. But uh, <laughs> on a more serious note, no, is I just, I, uh, I became, um, wrecked through anxiety over this last year and it was through flying and don't, it didn't really get it through anything else. And I started experiencing it through driving in like an Uber or driving with somebody who wasn't, I didn't know very well or whatever it might be, but it was totally just overtaking my life. And, um, I really think talking about it on that podcast and just saying it out loud to people really helped it. It's been tempered now. Um, I've done a lot of steps to take to make sure that the anxiety has been lowered. Um, I'm not somebody who's a big fan of medication. I just like want to do things naturally. I don't want to be stuck on that. And there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, addiction that happens in the alcohol industry. Obviously um, people always kind of worry about that. I'm always checking myself like, all right, did I drink too much this week? Did I drink too much last night? And then how do I counter that? How do I always make a game plan up to try to stay healthy when you're out consuming a lot of extra calories through alcohol? And, you know, maybe that helped. Maybe that kind of created some of my anxiety because I was, I've been out for so many years doing this job and uh, drinking late and, you know, doing whatever. Um, that's not necessarily healthy for your body. You know, eating burritos at 2 a.m. isn't always healthy, surprisingly enough. <laughs> But yeah, no, thanks for like bringing it up because I was, uh, it's something I've thought about a lot. A few people have reached out here and there and said, thanks. Or like, you know, shared their story. And I'm like, you know what guys, like that's, that's the amazing part of this, that we can all share each other's stories. We don't have to feel guilty about it. We don't have to hide it anymore. It's anxiety, depression, therapy. It's not a stigma. It's a part of reality. And, you know, you see it so, uh, I mean, so unfortunately you see it right now with, um, with veterans and, how many veterans are taking their life on a daily basis. And you just think like, you know, if those guys can be the ones out there, these uh, heroes, these patriots that can be like, Hey, like, let's like get rid of this. Like, let's talk about our problems. Let's talk about how therapy can help. Let's talk about the, the issues we're having internally with ourselves and collectively as a, as a country, as a group of humans, as a, as a human race in general, like maybe we'll be better in helping ourselves and helping the whole community out there. So um, this mostly was a part to reach out and let people know, like, it's okay to feel some hurt. It's okay not to be okay, essentially. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're a little closer to my age than I thought you were. You, know, you said 36, 37. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and you grew up in a city, but in a city that is in the middle of the, <laughs> I don't know, Midwest. It is a different different vein of people and and i don't know if this is how you may have grown up different than this but in my particular area there's this there's this unhealthy degree of stoicism that exists where mm. you just sort of you don't you don't talk about negative emotions on a regular basis aside from maybe with your spouse or your immediate parent right it, it's right. not it's not a global conversation to be had um and it's not necessarily a matter of shame or anything. It's just, this is my business. It's not your business. And and we shouldn't be talking about it. And that's one of the worst things that can happen in, 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 in anxiety, in, in any sort of mental health situation is isolation is, is mm. almost death. Um, and, you know, 
I've listened to, you know, I'm a subscriber. I listened to all your podcast episodes and, you know, there, there was nothing in any of the previous episodes that could have indicated it just as a, as a, as an avid listener, right? That's not something that you can pick up because we're well versed in hiding how we feel and, and, and not having that, that conversation and not being as raw and real because it's vulnerable because, um, a host of other reasons. And so it was, you know, more importantly, I heard that and I was like, my, my first reaction was like, I want to have him come on just so we can talk about that particular thing. And like, I love Star Wars. I love what you guys are doing. But I was like, this is this is bold and raw. And this is a conversation that needs to be had in more places. You know, we mm-hmm. we've grown up in a time frame where we have seen way too many once in a lifetime events. Right. You know, whether it's 9-11 or the L.A. riots or Rodney King or, you know, uh, COVID or insurrection or what like we've seen too many things that people should only have to see like you know oh this is my once in a lifetime event you know you talk to older generations like i remember where i was when jfk was shot or i remember where i was when the vietnam war started i have like 25 of those things mm-hmm. and that all creates this like emotional baggage that can feed into anxiety or feed into depression or feed into um any other number of unhealthy mental welfare states and we just aren't supposed to talk about it especially as men and right. things and you don't do we don't talk about those things and it was just it was incredibly refreshing and, it, and I, I don't know how hard that was for you maybe it was easy and hmm. if it was easy i applaud you because that's not for a lot of people yeah no i think there's a few things there like one of my favorite books slash movies too. fight club there's a line that says we're a generate we're a generation without a great war and yeah. it, it's like yeah we aren't and neither was that generation i guess either but we're a generation of many small tragedies that have developed into these catastrophic events that have wrecked our entire society not just in america but globally and that impacts huge like i remember columbine like we didn't know what was going on and that was the beginning of something now that we've gone down this horrific rabbit hole of replication of something that mm-hmm. happened now 23 years ago we were sitting in my eighth grade math class when that all happened and we didn't know what to do like my my dad's a high school principal he was running the high school across the street but i mean he's a very fair individual and people are like yeah look, all the weirdos that wear trench coats like they can't come to school the next day and it's like well let's let's hold off there like these are people that just express themselves through clothing as so does the cheerleader who wears abercrombie and fitch and but but there were so many emotions going on no one knew how to react now look 23 years later we're still having those conversations there's no resolution to it at all and you know we can't resolve these bigger issues at hand like i'm not trying to make it political at all but like i'm i grew up in iowa i grew up going hunting i grew up with a hunting family i'm pro second amendment i'm not pro ar-15 for any somebody's down the street that has like some sort of uh background that could be of a criminal background or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um but at the same time like yeah you should be able to have a gun in your household you should be able to have a shotgun to go hunting cool great but we can't put we, we have so many guns we have more guns than human beings in america we can't put that genie back in the in the in the box in the bottle you know like we have to figure it out but we haven't figured it out we can't figure out these giant societal issues because there's always an argument from one side, argument from the other side, and we can never meet in the middle because there's a political agenda to have. But I think one thing we can think about is like 
the mental health of an individual, mm-hmm. mental health of society. Like everyone's like, hey, let's make better people. Let's make winners in this country to make sure that our country is the best country that we put it out for the world to be betrayed as. And we can only do that through conversation. Like it's been a huge learning experience for me over the last decade or so about mental health, physical health, everything that comes about being a good human being, a good human being for like your, for your, for your own self, but also for the people around you. And the one thing we can only control is that small space, our small environment in this world. But from what I've learned from many people is that when you affect small change in your environment, you can affect bigger change out to the world. And if I can like, you know, if one person can reach out to me like, Hey man, like I do, I have stress too. I have, ther- I, I think I should get therapy or I think I should do this and that. And I can say, yeah, man, like that worked for me. Here's some outlets you can go to, to help yourself, mm-hmm. um, to aid yourself. Then, Hey, there we go. Like, that's all I can do. Like, I just want to make sure that people are good because one thing that I've started to really realize, um, through this anxiety and just watching people in airports and things like that, like there's a lot of people that have anxiety while flying. I never realized it. I was somebody that got on the plane first, got my bag mm-hmm. situated, earbuds in, whatever it might be. Like, why is it taking so long for everybody to board? Like, I can't just get on the plane. It's so easy. Just get get your bag, get on the plane. Right. And you didn't have, I'm pretty, I think I'm an empathetic person, but I didn't have a lot of empathy for people when it came to traveling because I was in the no. airport so much. And you're like, just get from A to B and, and to C as fast as possible. Um, but now it's really changed. Now I'm like, I take your time. I think we're all going to get there. Eventually this plane's going to land from Denver to Chicago. Like somehow, some way we're going to get there. And I think it's, I think a lot of people just need more empathy um, for one another. I and mean, that's the thing that would help the world out a lot more. So that's all I was trying to do with that podcast. And I don't know if it was hard or easy to record it. Um, I always wonder when I'm talking, I don't, if you listen to our podcast, I don't talk a lot. I just kind of ask questions, set up situations and let the guests roll because I want that conversation or that um, that episode to be about the individual who came on as a guest. So when I do, I have I think I've opened up four times on like solo podcasts, and I'm always like, does anybody care like what I say by myself? I don't I don't know. Like I think I'd rather hear somebody else telling their story versus mine. I I feel that thoroughly. I I, I do my dead level best whenever I try to have somebody join me on a podcast. Is number one, I try to listen to any other interview they've ever done. And just avoid those questions because mm-hmm. I want to have a real conversation. Not that I don't want to give you easy questions that you already have tons of answers to, but I want to talk about just like, I want to get to know who Jake is or who Chris is or who Alan is, you know, any of these folks that have joined me. Yeah. Um, and realistically, why, why would anybody care what I have to say specifically? Um, but it's, one of the one of the best things that I think that came out of of the pandemic, right? So we've got this this time frame where we all lost a year and a half, mm-hmm. um, and, and then some, depending upon what industry you work in or however. Yeah. But the the prolific utilization of telehealth that exists now, right? Um, so living in a in a rural area, when it comes to mental health, number one, is there a stigma if you happen to go into the to the to the storefront? So we've got a place here here in our town, and you go to the storefront, but right down from it is a restaurant where you know your friends and family may go in. If you're seen going in, is that going to be a barrier to entry for you seeking out some sort of care or mental health that exists? But a number of places are now offering 
the ability for you to sit at home and make that phone call and have that conversation and even do it face to face, whether it be through a Zoom call or some other sort of teleconferencing where it's not just a faceless phone call. And I, and I love that that exists now um, just because it gives people in rural areas access to a wide array of, of healthcare options. Because the other side is I can go to our local place and maybe it sucks. Maybe yeah. the, the people there and, and I'm going to say something that may be offensive to some people. I really don't care, but they may be there uh, under the guise of having a license by saying I am a licensed Christian counselor. <laughs> and see, the problem with that is that I can go onto a website right now and I can um, take a quiz and become a licensed Christian counselor. Oh. But that's enough to stand up a storefront in a lot of places hmm. and be a counselor for people uh, for mental health issues. But mm. because I have that religious connotation and I live in Kentucky, people are like, oh, I should trust them. You absolutely shouldn't. Like, you should do some research on who it is. But if that's all that's available to me, then I'm probably going to get shitty mental health care. Yeah. And that's almost worse than none. Actually, it can be very much worse than none whatsoever. Um, but that's but, a great point. No, I actually had to switch therapist because the dude was like putting too many thoughts in my head. Like, I'm like, dude, you're stressing me out. What, you're, you're making me put think of things and situations that I never even could conjure up on a plane, you know? And it's, it, I was talking to a, uh, I guess he'd be like a life coach slash like um, physical therapist type of like, I don't know, something like awesome kind of dude who mm -hmm. lifts weights and gives you a, a workout program, but also kind of like guides you through life. And this guy was in Houston. I met at a, at a believe it or not, at some bars and doing some, <laughs> some events and, we're talking like he's a big jacked yoke dude and with like a soft soul and like a great outlook on life and a super intellectual. And we're talking, he's like, you just got a bad therapist. Like, you know, you just need right. somebody else. And I'm like, ding, ding, dong. Like right there, light switch goes off in your head. And you're like, yeah, definitely. Like therapy can be good. Like you can like build some good principles, but if it's built around something like religion where there's an ulterior motive to why you're doing that, I've been in that situation too. Like even with a, a family member who was like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of wanted to have that. I was going through stuff in my early twenties. Like you're, it's all based around God. I'm like, well, I don't think God's the answer right now. It's probably more something to do about like why I want to take a gun and put it in my mouth and, and pull a trigger. Like that probably it's a bigger right. issue right there than the actual God. But, um, you know, like, but I appreciate the help they wanted to provide, but just had the wet, wrong way of going about it. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, that's, that's the, the wrong way can be bad. And, and the thing is, it may not even be that the counselor is bad at their job. It can be a bad fit, right? Cause you, yeah. you have to have, at least in, in my limited experience and understanding, you have to have someone that you feel like you can trust and that you think is legitimate. And that person just may not fit you. It could be, um, could be their background. It could be the way they talk. It could be any number of things that happen in just normal interpersonal communication that kind of throws them off for you. And so, um, having choice available to you is, is a big deal, you know, like having, having right. access to, um, someone that, that can listen, like it was huge. And, and, and listening to that, you know, my immediate thought process is, is like one of the other podcasts that I listen to, this is my podcast listening is real weird. I'm just going to say that right <laughs> now. Um, so I've got, uh, a podcast that I listen to that's called hood politics. And it's this guy on the West coast that basically just relates, uh, what's happening in the current, uh, North American political climate to how, um, politics in the hood work you know, like in, in Compton specifically, like how mm. gang relations work. And it's, it's like a super interesting take on it. And then one of the other ones is my you know, blossom slash Amy from 
Mm-hmm. She's got a podcast and it's a mental health podcast. It's all it is. Oh. And it's fantastic. It's like an hour's worth of whatever. And then there's anyways. So I end up, you know, listening to this and I hear you talking about it. I'm like, this is, this is a place where these things kind of intersect. And I think these are, are, are important conversations. You just don't hear it. Like, you know, the whiskey space gets real broed out real quick, right? Yeah. We're, we're just whiskey, you know, and there's not a, sometimes there's not a lot of genuine, um, relation of human beings that occurs you know no it's- you're 100 right on that i think we 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 forget or we suppress so many feelings because there's alcohol there and every night um i'm talking more like from a person who's out and about hanging out in bars and restaurants and retail shops on a daily base basis is you, you just you have another drink might forget about your problems and then you wake up the next day and problems were still there but for a few right. hours the night before they were gone um yeah it's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of problems in the whiskey industry a lot of problems in the spirits industry um and one of those main things is mental and physical health and the way you kind of beat your body up but don't actually take care of yourself that way seeing a lot of people kind of go down some some weird paths some unhealthy paths if you will mm-hmm. um in a lot of times they can correct it but sometimes you're kind of past the point of no return or past the point of Oh man, this is gonna take a lot of work and a lot of effort to get back to somewhere, uh, somewhere more ground level. Yeah, and that's—I mean, a lot of times it's just getting started. Like that's that's the first step. Oh, you know, yeah. you, you you said you had that mantra of finish the job. You know, like you need to finish the thing that you're doing. Um, the other side of that can be just get started on on doing whatever yeah. it is. Is it mental health? Is it physical health? Is it uh, you know whatever? Right? You know, kind of exploring exploring anything. Um, so um you have a podcast that's that's where we were talking about it allegedly um it's uh, and so there's there's a guy that's in the chat here his name is robbie dedlow and he is a part of another uh whiskey podcast um called chill filtered and i've actually teased them before you know they're maybe the second best whiskey podcast without whiskey in the name of it um and and i i kind of made that statement but i don't know that they don't listen to your podcast so they didn't know that it, it was it was it's almost it's my own inside joke to myself that i, that nice. I told them at one point in time um but you 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 don't explicitly talk about starward i mean actually you don't talk about starward a ton at all on it you talk about a ton of other brands um does starward get bothered by that or is that just part of the deal it's like this is who i am <laughs> uh interesting question um they're totally cool with it uh there's actually a long-running joke that my boss has never been on it um Mm -hmm. but that we've we've literally i bring them wherever i travel for work i bring two microphones with me and a recorder zoom recorder like just never know if something's gonna happen pop up go into like a hotel re-record a conversation all that fun stuff but um i don't know how many times him and i have tried to set up a podcast and the one day we actually had it set up was march must i must have been like march uh march 18th 2020 um we had a there was a big whiskey festival happening in chicago so we used to record our podcast in a place called beguile brewing which is an awesome brewery here in chicago if you're ever in chicago go buy their beer um great people great beer but we started we did the first year plus um recording our podcast in their brewery and 
this Friday before this big whiskey festival, we we're going to do these like three podcasts in a row. And the last one was going to be like live with like friends. Like just like, we're just going to go all out and hang out. Lou Bryson was going to come in. My boss was going to come in do episodes. And then we we're just going to do like a big industry podcast. But then COVID happened, never happened. And ever since we've been teasing about it, like, Oh, we're going to come on. And now it's just a big inside joke that my boss has never been on the podcast and our whole marketing team isn't on it too. So uh, fun times there, but no, they're totally cool with it. But another company I was interviewing with the same time, I was interviewing Star Wars. They were like, "You got to shut it down." And I was only like, twenty episodes in, maybe. And but they were just <laughs> like, "They're like, you're just promoting other brands." I'm like, "Yeah, it's a whiskey podcast. Like, I didn't work for you when I started this podcast. Um, right. My whole idea was about telling the stories behind the bottle. I want to hear about distillers, ambassadors, bartenders, owners, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, whoever it might be, um, share their story about the whiskey industry, the spirits industry." So, but they're like, yeah, I don't think we can do that. And then I'm like, okay, like kind of considering it in my head. And then the next conversation was about, would you like to sell vodka? And I'm like, what? And they're like, because <laughs> it was with a portfolio as part of a distributor. Right. right. My job, my job before I was applying for was to be a scotch market manager. Um, but they're like, you could do this job in your sleep. If I could tell you could do it, blah, blah, blah. But like, would you ever sell vodka and beer? I'm like, I'm here to sell whiskey. Like what? And I was like, told, I basically like just kind of like ended the interview. And I was like, <laughs> if I know? sell, if I sell vodka and beer, does that mean I get to keep the podcast, but only talk about whiskey? Yeah. Again? Right. Because, uh, it's like, 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 yeah. Yeah. They're like, yeah, you'd be in this like for a year and we'll move on to the next thing. I'm like, that's not really why I want to do this, but um, you know, I th- th- no star Wars has been great with it. They're really cool about it. When I was over in Australia for the first time a few years ago, like, somehow it came up in the office. I was working in the office one day and be like, you have a podcast and like, has Dave been on? And I'm like, no, Dave hasn't been on yet, but uh, we'll get him on. And they're like, Oh, we'll listen to it. So it's, it's fun. Um, it's a great time. I've had one of my co, co- Katrina has been on once, um, which actually she was just on like um, two months ago for the first time, but we were going to do a bit. We're going to tales next week, our whole team. So we're going to do a, a big team star Ward podcast, but they're, uh, they're great about it. They don't push me about it at all. Um, they know like I'm a whiskey lover and mm-hmm. it, it, you met, we were talking about earlier, the two worlds did collide a little bit there over COVID as we were doing like virtual tastings, to the podcast, but we just saw that like as a really great way to do free virtual tastings for people out there. Um, and also support our brands at the same times and just, you know, talk about whiskey with people like like-minded people. Yeah. And it, and it seems like at least with, with smaller brands um, there, there's a more openness to this. There, there, there's a seat for everyone at the table you know? and yeah. there's, there's, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all ships, you know, like that, that's a thing. Um, and cooperating with other brands can put you in a position where you may end up in front of a consumer that wouldn't show up. They didn't show up for you. They didn't show up for star Wars. They showed up for Abalor, mm-hmm. but you're there as well. And so now you're gaining access to it. And it feels like at least that smaller brands are more open to that. Cause they realize that th- there are many, many ways to a consumer. And this is one of them we can get there. Um, Cause yeah. I, I, two years ago, I did not know who star Wars was. And if I'd have been, you know, one of those people that shows up at our a local liquor retailer and they're like, Hey, we're doing a Star Wars tasting, but I don't know what that is. And I would probably kind of keep going. Right. Say, hey, we're doing a tasting of whiskeys and here's the five brands. I don't have to know any of them, but I'm like, this is an opportunity to taste five different brands at one time and kind of see what's going on. And so it gives yeah. you an opportunity to kind of broaden your broaden your reach a little bit. Who who's been your favorite guest that you've had uh, on on any episode? Or do you have one? I mean uh, like asking for your favorite child no no i mean like most of our guests are really cool we kind of 
I kind of really handpick her guests. There's only been one person that came on that I didn't know very well, and I didn't feel like it went very well either. It wasn't like it was the person was a jerk or anything. I just was like, I didn't have a connection with them. One of the other guys brought booked everything, so it's not not in the sense of that, but um, one that stands out and one that like let us know that we were doing something correct and a validation as we were talking about before with the distillery of the year stuff was uh, when Graham Cruikshank, the Abelauer master distiller, came on. And this is before I even knew Callum. Uh, Callum's predecessor, was Alan Clark, who was the first Chicago Abelauer um, brand ambassador, him and I had built a friendship through the industry. And um, their PR company like reached out to me like, hey, would you want to have Graham Cruikshank on? He's coming to America and he's our master distiller, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, that'd be cool. So I actually had just gotten back from Australia like the day before, and we recorded another podcast before we went to go record with Graham. So like I was like kind of like out of it. I'm like, well, okay, cool. We're going downtown to the Hoxton to record a podcast in a swanky hotel with uh, some guy I know about but don't know at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's always good to jump kind of outside of your comfort zone and do those things and this is the first like legit master distiller we were having on the podcast. And then it was like an amazing hour conversation and we hit it off right away. We've become friends since then. Uh, he's, I, th- I think he's been to my apartment. Um, when he comes to Chicago, he comes on the podcast. We go out drinking. We're at an event together um, right before COVID. It's a big Avalar event and Callum kind of grabbed me. He's like, Hey, like, can we get out of here? Like, let's like, let's get Graham out of here and like pulled him away, went to like a diet bar in my neighborhood and hung out for the night. So um, I would say Graham has been probably the coolest guest we've had on where like, okay, this let us know we're doing something correct when it comes to doing this podcast. You know, and it's, it feels weird. Be like, there's no one in my family that knows that I have a podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously some folks in your family know that you have a podcast because uh, someone with the exact same last name as you followed me this afternoon after you shared some stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't even remember. It's a, it's a woman. My wife. I don't, I I can only my dad. It has to be my dad. Julianne Hookie. That's my mom. Hucky. Hucky. Is it Hucky? How would it? Hucky. Hucky like cookie. Yeah, so your mom, your mom followed me on mom, Instagram. All right, I, feel, I feel really, really, really privileged to be able to have a mom follow. But like, it, it feels weird to tell people like, "Oh, I have a podcast," you know? Yeah. And, oh and, yeah. Like, you know, just sort of saying it out loud. Um, it's embarrassing. <laughs> has there been? It, do you have an episode where you're like, "Man, I just wish I had never recorded that." Have you had one of those yet? Um. I don't think so. I've we've lost a couple episodes um, just through bad recording. Um, I, there's no one I regret having on at all because, like I said, we kind I kind of I have an idea. Most people, PR agencies, do reach out to us and ask us to have them on. I'll be like, and I'll start telling them, like that's not really like what we do here. Um, and then last, like if anybody asked me for a list of questions, I'm like, oh, sorry, I don't think this is gonna work. Like you haven't listened to like, like ours is a very free flowing conversation. Just like here. Um, we can talk about like Jason Bateman movie for 10 minutes and then like right. have a serious conversation about the history of bourbon. Like it's just going to go all over the place. It so, goes where it goes. It's it, yeah, exactly. It's like a river, man. It just goes where it goes. Yeah. And like, I've, I, I don't know. I've kind of like, I, I would, I would say I forced a couple in there. We do this thing called the, the 12 days of barrel picks over yep. Christmas where we do released 12 episodes in 12 days about an individual single barrel um and like some of them were kind of like reaching not the guests but just like yeah like 
do we really need to record that? But it's kind of fun to just do that project and send in, in, in that sense. But um, and even then, we were kind of doing one with uh, uh, Traverse City, and it, it, it kind of blew up the the old message boards of the whiskey industry um, on Facebook and Reddit because they have like a problematic single barrel about where their MGP whiskey is being distilled. Is it being in, distilled in California, uh, in uh, Indiana, or in Kentucky? Because MGP actually uses Bardstown sometimes as a contractor, which people don't know, but it's still MGP whiskey, but it's just distilled in Kentucky, blah, blah, blah. You know, all those nuances there. So that was kind of fun to like, the brand was like, can you pull the podcast? I'm like, dude, you don't want me to pull the podcast. If I pull it down, it's only going to create more controversy that way. And my wife, like I said, works in social media marketing in the whiskey industry. She's like, no, like you shouldn't pull it down at all. You guys didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, yeah, it's going to blow over in like two days. And it did because it's just a whiskey podcast out there on the internet. It's not like Ben Affleck and what's her face getting married again. So, yeah. Uh, oh, did Ben Affleck get married again? Yeah, it's uh, Jennifer Lopez. Round two, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe we're going to get G. Lee part two then. Oh, God. I can only hope. But didn't she die? I, and I mean, does it really matter? Like true, the seven it, people who watch that will be worried about the continuity of it, but you know it's like no any one Marvel else movie, movie. You, can, you never really die in Marvel movies anymore or Star Wars movies for that point. So no, I mean, look, I'm I'm pretty sure that that Iron Man's dead. You can't bring him back. They had a funeral. Yeah, there, there's there's a legitimate funeral that happened, and I'm really glad that they killed Captain America. But that's you know neither here nor there. He's the I worst did? character. I, I gave up I, after. Uh, end game I'm like i'm done i'm not watching any more of these i'm like i can't do it anymore can't dedicate any of my life to this so it it was it was worth it but yeah no yes it's, i mean captain america was supposed to die long then i'm gonna go comic book nerd and i'm gonna stop no let's do it um captain america should have died during the civil war that's when he was supposed to die that's when he died in the comic books he's the worst he, like he's just this cut rate version of superman uh yeah and i don't even really like superman either I, you know, like yeah. it's, it's not a great character um, you know, give me, give me a Batman all day long. Give me an Iron Man, you know, somebody who's a hero, but also a little bit dark, yeah. a little bit grimy. Like that's, that that's, that's fantastic. If I want a pure, uh, comic book character, maybe I want Spider-Man because he's a child. Mm. He's just a child is what he is. Good but, point. So, so Chicago, you mentioned that you, you were, you were taking Graham to a dive bar in your neighborhood. I'm not going to ask that one, yeah. but you know, I find myself in Chicago a couple times a year for work. What's a dive bar I should be in? Dive bar you should be in. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily a dive bar. It's built like a dive bar, um, but it happens to have like the greatest whiskey selection in the country, and that bar is Delilah's. They yeah. have, they are a, they will say they are a punk rock bar based around DJ spinning every night. Does that happen? Yes. Is that how it was built? One hundred percent. 29 years later it's known as the best whiskey bar in chicago and one of the best whiskey bars in the entire world they have over 2,000 whiskeys they have a star wars single barrel i don't know how that happened um and uh amazing collection of wines as well if you uh ask about the wine selection they will tell you about it but if you don't see it it's because it's hidden but they will they will present it to you if you ask about it um great beer list there full of like local beers and beers all across the country and world too so it's just become this like epicenter for great drinking and you can drink from any part of the world um inside this little great lincoln park neighborhood bar um called delilah's in chicago I believe they won best whiskey bar in the world in 2000, uh, 2020, I think. 
Yeah, but it's like a dive bar, essentially. Uh, upstairs, there's one pool table, a Star Wars pinball machine, and a bar with amazing whiskeys. I can't play pool for shit, so that, that doesn't matter to me in the slightest, but somebody else might. Um, right. Yeah, usually we're we're right in the, the the primary downtown area. We stay at the the Palmer usually. Uh, okay. Um, more down there. Not necessarily dive bar. Well, you go to Richards. Richards is kind of like the most notorious dive bar in Chicago. Um, not necessarily legal, but they allow smoking to still take place. They still sm- sell cigarettes. Um, <laughs> top bar. So uh, it's known as that. You you know you pay four dollars for a domestic beer and have a cigarette laugh along sing some songs and next thing you know it's touching hands and neil diamonds on the on the soundtrack and the night's over are there people in chicago that don't work in the food industry that still smoke i, I feel like that's not a thing like <sighs> i guess all those cool kids using those jewels out there <laughs> you know, know and I may, maybe i'm just because i am turning into a curmudgeon old man but if i'm gonna go to the length of trying to get lung cancer i'm gonna do it with a good old-fashioned cigarette that's, yeah, that's what you got to get to. I agree. I, I put my American spirits down about eight years ago, so um, I'm not too sure what's happening in the whole smoking scene in Chicago. It, it's very yeah. uh, not prevalent, I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I quit quit smoking a long time ago as well, but um, John Prine's got a song, and one of the lines in one of the songs is, when I get to heaven, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine mm-hmm. miles long, and he's not wrong. No. He's not wrong. It'll be delicious. Dude, I still, I still have like these phantom senses of like on my hands sometimes i'll like my hands will smell like cigarettes and i'm like oh god oh, just one just one just, just need one i have i have a jacket i've never washed since i quit smoking and i'm like, uh-huh. still can smell it my my left pocket where i kept my cigarettes i'm like oh yeah there it is yep you catch yourself so uh you know living in rural western kentucky there's still a good degree of smoking that happens you know you, you might catch yourself going into a restaurant coming out of a restaurant we're not allowing it in the restaurants but there's mm-hmm. still people outside smoking you might just giving it a little extra pause to catch a whiff mm-hmm. of the guy who's like two doors down, uh, smoking a cigarette or whatever. Yeah. Um, oh, I hear. I see. Like, I think. Uh, I think Dijar and Blacks, which were closed cigarettes, mm-hmm. um, probably ruined my palate for the rest of my life because whenever I taste bourbon, I'm like, oh, clove. Like I, I, every single time, <laughs> it's like, always there. It's always there. Any bourbon I drink, it's like, oh, there's a tiny sense of like red licorice with some black licorice with like a little bit of cardamom. Oh, clove. Is that what you're trying to say, Jake? Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's, that's effectively what's happening there. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's what happened to whiskey there in the mid nineties and early two thousands, because that's what they were like. Clove cigarettes were really popular then. Hmm. And so maybe just like bourbon just sort of tasted like clove cigarettes and people were like, I already got that in my cigarette. I don't need this in, in, in any other form or fashion. That's that's why Jameson took off then because it tastes nothing like clove. Right. Well, I mean, it doesn't have a super strong taste of anything, right? Um, that sounds right. really shitty. That's not that's that's not no. what I'm trying to get after. I'm not big, I'm big not being Black insulting. Barrel fan here. I'm a big Jimison Black Barrel fan, actually. Uh huh. So, and I think so. Kind of going back to Starward, you know, you're yeah. talking about being a single malt here, and one of the things, at least in my very limited experience, you know, I grew up in Kentucky, so bourbon is king. That's the thing, you know. Screw Jack Daniels, even though it's bourbon. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, we drink bourbon here and scotch is, is not got a significant following, at least in my area, you know, trying to find reasonable scotch. But scotch historically for me has been more nuanced in its flavor. And we're still in that single malt category with a lot of scotches, but it's nuanced in flavor because of the climate, because of the barrels, because of whatever else. Right. But 
what I find attractive uh, with Star Wars specifically is, and I think that I know the answer to this, but it has some of the same nuance that that single malts will have, but it's got just a shit ton more character to it. Mm. You know, there's there's a lot more body and robustness, and it I think that it has that. Because it's in a hotter, it's in a hotter climate. It's picking up the aging at a different rate. It's not, I hate the term, you know, fast aging or slow mm-hmm. aging or whatever. It's just different aging, right? Yeah. Because of the climate, because of where it is, it's going to age significantly different. And if you go much more than probably six years without doing some sort of a slow water reduction, you're going to end up with something that looks like motor oil mm-hmm. just because of, uh, of barrel loss or whatever. But you're able to pick up more character while still being in that scotch realm. That is appealing to me to the you know cask strength bourbon drinker. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you hit it on the head right there. It's it's all about letting the whiskey, letting the region speak for itself inside the whiskey bottle. Um, we where one of the foundations that Star Wars was built on is that we think whiskey should taste like where it's from, mm-hmm. and a big part of that is the climate in Australia. The, you know, the average temperatures in the high seventies in Melbourne on a daily basis where like you compare it to Scotland, the average temperature is like 41 degrees. Like there's a reason why there's eight, 10, 12, 23, 25, 31 year old scotch. Cause they mm-hmm. can, you can't do that. In Kentucky. Like we've all had 20, I'm sure you've had a 20 year old b- bottle of Kentucky, of Kentucky bourbon. And you're like, Oh, that's what I waited for all these years. That's what I paid all this money for. <laughs> and you're like, cool. Um, the experience is there, I guess you always had that to hold on to, but like I, one of my favorite stories that my grandpa ever shared with me is when Baker was developing Baker's, uh, he was going to barrel age it for six years. That was the foundation of the, of, of his, uh, just of his whiskey. And my grandpa asked Baker, he's like, well, how'd you just settle on six years? And he's like, that's the best time to, that's the best amount of time to barrel age your whiskey for in Kentucky. And he was like, okay, cool. And then, you know, years pass and he comes out with the whiskey and it's seven years old. And, he asked Baker again, like, why is this whiskey seven years old? I thought six was the best. And he's like, well, if six is the best. One year has to be even better. It's like, okay, <laughs> um, sure. Why not? But it's also like, that's a good amount of time to barrel age whiskey in Kentucky and Australia. We're barrel aging for three to five years because we're pulling so much flavor from those barrels in a short amount of time as we're what we call four seasons in a day where there's so much of the heat opening up the barrels of those pores when it's hot and then mm-hmm. contracting as it gets colder throughout each and every day will drop from like 110 to 60 degrees in like a couple of hours during the summertime. Like that's a high rate of speed of contraction. I've worked for distilleries. I've talked to a lot of distillers that they have 10 gallon, 15 gallon, 30 gallon barrels. And you truly are shocking the, the flavor into the whiskey. Um, we're using 59 gallon casts. So a little bit larger than the standard size cast here in America, but at the same time, like we're letting that whiskey concentrate itself inside the staves, pull out those wine flavors from the um, from the staves that were previously holding Cabernets, Shirazes, Pinot Noirs, Sherries um, from all across Australia. And inside of that, those staves, that wine is almost acting as a filter. Um, we don't really rechar most of our barrels. We only rechar about 25% of our casts. So if we don't rechar the barrels, there's a l- plethora of wine flavor still inside of those staves. Probably on average, we have a gallon to a gallon and a half of wine still left in the barrel when we start to interact the whiskey into the barrels itself. Because we're taking barrels that have only been dumped um, of wine within 48 hours. We're getting whiskey to the inside of there. So it's a pretty quick turnaround from wine being inside the barrel to whiskey being inside the barrel and barrel aging. And this is inside of those uh, barrels for three to five years. 
you know, you're letting that flavor develop. It's not about doing a finish where you're putting the whiskey inside of a wine cast for three to six months and almost like shocking the flavor once again, because when you put that whiskey inside of a wine barrel for three to six months, you're only really going through one season of heat probably. And you're pulling out a lot of flavor at one time, but it doesn't allow for it to go back into the barrel and kind of recollect itself and then come back out and find a balance. You just get a lot of like more punchy fruitier flavors right away into your whiskey and that can hide some imperfections in whiskey that can make a whiskey that doesn't have a lot of sweetness to it have some sweetness have some more character to it for ours is all about finding this roundabout character between making a really good whiskey that comes off the still and having like this banana almost like hefeweizen flavors to our new make and then putting it into a barrel and adding the sweet characteristic over time but finding the oak balance in there finding the right amount of spiciness clove is one thing I get a lot in our whiskeys especially in our single malts and we're making a whiskey that can be for the masses in that sense, because there's enough flavor of a bourbon drinker can find familiar to it that like a 25 year old professional single malt drinker can also go enjoy and start a whiskey too. So it's all about finding that balance at the end of the day, but it also comes down to how does your climate, how does your terroir, how does that place speak to your speak to making to you when making whiskey? And for us, it's about making sure we're really using the climate as best as we can. I like that Hefeweizen note and I, you know, cause that's when I think beer, it's either Hefeweizen or give me something that's thick and black, like, mm. uh, like, like truck stock coffee, you know, give me a stout, give me a porter, give me something along that lines. But you know, if I'm on the light end, that's where I want to be. And so that kind of f- filters in and that's, you, you touched on something that, you know, we sort of get obsessed with uh, in Kentucky in thinking that, you know, <laughs> it's the, it's the hot summers that make our bourbon what it is. And, and, and it's not really that it's, it's a heat exchange game is what it really is. And so yeah. what you're experiencing in four years is significantly different because, you know, when we get to the summertime, we get to this time of the year, our heat exchange is only going to be 10 or 15 degrees, right? We, mm-hmm. Whenever we're talking about Fahrenheit specifically, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to drop down to, you know, 80 at night and go back up to 95 in the day and 80 at night, 95 in the day. When you're looking at a 20 or 25 point differential, you're getting that aging in a single yeah. heat cycle. That's what it's really kind of about. And that's, um, and then also, you know, from what I understand, Australia is pretty, pretty, pretty low humidity whenever it comes to, to temperature. And that has some degree of an impact as well. Yeah, there's humidity there like in the summertime because we're pretty close to the water. We're only about a mile from the ocean um, because we're in Port Melbourne, which is about a mile and a half south of downtown. So we're pretty situated right there on the water. So we do have like this weird, this summertime there's like this weird infusion of humidity just from being close to the water and having that hotter heat. And you have the Indian Ocean waves or uh, air like pushing over the entire country. That's really you know, crazy the outback. Then you have Antarctica pushing up these cold temperatures right underneath mm-hmm. you. And then Melbourne just kind of like meets right in the middle of it all. So it's like this really perfect spot to barrel age whiskey. You know, it works out. It's right. like when we really break down what whiskey is, like it's a simple science. It's a great place to barrel age whiskey or get killed by some type of animal because like every animal in Australia wants to kill you, right? Everyone says that and you're like, you go to Australia and like, they're like bothered by anything. It feels like I, I saw some kangaroos jumping through a field one time. That's about the coolest thing I saw uh, when I was over there, but I am going back in September. So I'm, I'll make sure to go find some more interesting critters. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get killed by something. Like, obviously that's not what you're after. You're not trying to find. Hope not. What is it like 11 of the 14 most poisonous steaks are there or something. And then there's the box jellyfish and there's <sighs> just, 
it, I, one of my coworkers, whenever she did her study abroad in agriculture, that's where she went. She went to Australia. She's got mm. nothing but great things to say. You know, it's one of those places that when my my progeny finally leave the nest, you know, maybe me and my wife will go there because I don't know if they're worth that level of spending yet or not. We're still, <laughs> they're young. They're young enough. It's pretty. Maybe they are. Maybe they won't be. Maybe they'll figure out a way on their own. But um, it's obviously something that that we want to do. So kind of rolling back into the United States here, what, what is, you know, you, you work in this industry, what is mm-hmm. the best or most interesting trend that is occurring in whiskey in the United States? I don't know if it's the best, but it seems to be most prolific is barrel finishes. Mm-hmm. Um, as a brand that does unique barrel aging where we don't finish, we do some LTOs, limited time offerings that have some finishes in them. Um, but our whole foundation is we, whatever we make, we're barrel aging in red wine barrels. That's just what's going to happen. Uh, from day one, it's been that way. And I'm sure it'll continue that way for many, many years down the line. But I also wonder why people are doing these finishes. Why distilleries are taking it upon themselves to go buy these barrels from maybe a local vineyard or maybe from a vineyard across the world? Because is there a purpose built behind what you're doing? I think a lot of what we've been talking about tonight is like, what's the purpose behind what you're doing in life? And that goes right into this, this trend of barrel finishing. Are you putting your whiskey inside of a, a port cast because your whiskey doesn't have a lot of flavor to it and you can put some flavor in there in a few months. Are you taking a stout cask because you saw another distillery do it and it worked out for them and you think, yeah, might as well try it and see how it works out for us because we have a brewery around us. Or then you take, for example, which is my favorite American whiskey example is Westward um, a distillery out of Portland, Oregon, where everything they do is the same thing that we do as a distillery. It's about purpose. It's about defining where you're from and showing that off inside of a whiskey bottle. So they're taking, there's some great vineyards out in, um, in Oregon and they're taking local uh, wine barrels and putting their whiskeys and doing finishes in them to represent Oregon, the terroir of Oregon inside that bottle. They're using local stout cast because Portland has one of the best beer scenes in the whole goddamn world. And they're like, well, why don't we implement what Oregon is known for and what we want to be known for, American single malts, but using something that can kind of enhance our whiskey. And there's other distillers out there like, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. And is there anything wrong with that? No. But are we oversaturating the market, oversaturating the shells with something that's just a trend, something that we're just doing what the bottle next to us is doing, or are we doing it to define purpose for ourselves? And I don't. I don't like when whiskey is just out there to try new things to see if it sticks because I've worked for brands like that where you kind of get stuck in this rabbit hole of, Hey, we're like the unique, cool distillery that tries new things. You're like, okay, but what are you as a distillery at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Like, are you a liqueur distillery? Are you a vodka distillery, are you a gin distillery, are you a whiskey distillery? Are you like some, there's nothing here that's built on a foundation other than trying new things. And at the end of the day, is there consistency to your products? And if there's not, then are people going to go buy you that second bottle of whiskey after trying it the first time? Yeah. And I, I like that. You know, are you, are you trying to hide the sins of bad distillate? Mm. Are you trying to chase money? Are you truly trying to experiment because, you know, you, you tried a particular spirit or wine or beer and you're like, I wonder what whiskey would taste like in this because I can appreciate that. I, I, I yeah. I've had that 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 thought in my brain before as well, where I drink something I'm like, I wonder what what, what 
it, yeah. finished, and this would taste like, you know, and, but I don't, I don't have a distillery. If I did right. I have one, but then I would also <laughs> sort of not have it as necessarily a good identity. But if you start with good distillate, that's been aged appropriately, maybe you're in the right place. And I, I really like what you mentioned Westwood. Cause I will say, you know, when it comes to uh, American single malts, their Pinot Noir. Mm. Dang. It's, it's sitting right over here. It's, I just it's, had it in a cocktail last night. It's delicious. It really yeah. is. And, and I'm a sucker for stout finishes. Um, you know, so you know, Bell Mead in Nashville, which is the, the Greenbrier, Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, mm-hmm. they do, they've got um, the Black Belt, which they partner with a yep. local brewery to make theirs. And so I'm, I'm on board. Let, let, you know, let's give this a shot. You know, what are you trying to do? They're making, they weren't making, they were buying good whiskey from MGP. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, we've got some people we can partner with locally. Yeah. And kind of keep their identity the same. And, and maybe you've, you've already touched on this by answering the, the question of what is the best trend in whiskey with some also nefarious intent, but what's the worst thing that's happening in, in whiskey in the United States right now? Is it also mm. barrel finishing? No, I mean, I think like, I don't know if there's a worse thing. Um, I think there's like a saturation. I think there's not a saturation of whiskeys, I should say, but I have this conversation a lot with friends. Um, this bubble is going to burst. Like, Every bubble always does. It's going to, it's going to burst. There's going to be the ones to stick around because they make really good product and people are keep buying it. And there's going to be like a weird Jameson, probably somewhere on the way where they had great marketing and built into this connect into this generation and it connects to the next generation and somehow they get lucky and pull it off and start selling the whiskey through generations. That's awesome. Um, but at the same time, like we can't all, we can't all last. It's impossible. Like there's way too many brands out there. You look at how, how many brands are in the bourbon section or in the rye section, this growing world whiskey section category as well. Like it's impossible. It's simply impossible for every state out there to be making whiskey and every one of those brands to stick around for the long run. I just hope that people that, that want to stick around for the right reasons have a chance to pull out through all this and, be a part of a, you know a building legacy of American whiskey because I think we're, we are living through history right now. I think mm-hmm. we're defining something when it comes to American single malts. I think we're doing something amazing when it comes to these next level of craft distilleries that are growing up. They've gone into this four-year mark. They're hitting bottle and bond status now. They're doing great things when it comes to maturation um, by letting their whiskey develop. Uh, and have find its flavor, find its taste, tasting notes that can be consistent throughout batch to batch. And those are the ones that are starting to stick around. I think, I think it's amazing. I think the worst trend is people just trying to, if there's one worst trend, it's people that are in it for the buck and they're trying to make mm-hmm. the fast sell. Um, they aren't the, the pin hooks of the world. They aren't the star awards of the world that are out there with this like passionate claim to whiskey, um, to distilling, to blending, to being craftsmen on a day-to-day basis and being a part of their job and part of their livelihood. So aside from Starward, you know, because we, we're, yep. we've talked about Starward, Starward, everybody should be buying a bottle if you could find one locally. Um, if 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 you can't find one locally, reach out. We'll see if we can figure out a way to find a spot for you. Um, I can't tell if it's my feet over here, or my feet over here, but I think we're losing some some granularity. I may have to re-upload this later on. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, what's what is a brand or a bottle that folks are sleeping on right now that they shouldn't be? Like, what's the thing? What's the and and if you don't feel comfortable saying it online, maybe we can take it offline and I'll know I need to pick one up, you know, but I want to be on the cutting edge. I want to be on the Jake's cutting edge of cutting what edge. should be happening in whiskey. I feel like, so 
we have this joke on our podcast that we have to contract contractually obligated to say pin hook on every single podcast because since the first time we tried them on a podcast with Chris, actually, mm-hmm. um, we talked about them essentially every single time and become friends as well. Sean Joseph was like right up there with one of those favorite episodes of mine where he came into my basement and my wife's like, the founder of pin hook is coming into our basement to record a podcast in like an hour. I'm like, yeah, last minute, but you know, we'll figure this out. Well, I'll vacuum real quick. Um, I feel like people know about them. I I would say, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, it's it's like right there. There's right. there's two bottles of pinhook right there. I can, I can kind of see. I have terrible eyes. It's well, it's oh. it's it's intentionally not visible because um, I'm I'm in that quantity over quality concept. Yeah. Not necessarily to say that these are not quality, but I, I don't. You probably get this question too, like, "What's your favorite whiskey?" I'm like, I don't know because I haven't tried them all yet. I can't right, right, what right. My favorite is I haven't gotten there, but I'm trying to get there, and and I'm not gonna have, you know, ten four hundred dollar bottles, but I'm gonna have a hundred forty dollar bottles. Yeah, go, right. You know, same. Um, yeah. But anyway, sorry, you you're talking about pin hook. You think pin hook's the thing? Oh, it might be. I I feel like it's getting out there. Um, I'll, I'll give it. I'll give a shout out to one of my favorite people in the entire world, entire whiskey world, and he's a good friend. Um, a distiller doesn't have a ton of national distribution, but they will because their founder is the greatest psychopath in the entire world of the whiskey industry, and I mean that endearingly. Um, there's this little brand up in Whiskey City, USA, Wisconsin, also known as Cambridge, Wisconsin called the dancing goat um their founder yep. <laughs> Nick yep. brady moss is a good friend who actually we developed a friendship through the podcast um initially and then became in life in real life uh friends too but uh they he is somebody who is very dedicated to building a distillery from literally every screw every bolt that goes into that distillery he has his hands on with a vision that's all his about how to source whiskey how to distill whiskey how to blend whiskey how to do it's a solera style system of blending your whiskey how to create single barrels how to take the appropriate scientific approach to making whiskey because he actually knows science mm-hmm. and i feel like just kind of go out and build a distillery and see what happens his technique is I wouldn't say flawless, but there's all, it's so detail oriented that it's always built around purpose. Getting back to that. Um, he's only 33, 44, 34 years old, if that, but he's the most knowledgeable, knowledgeable person I know about the whiskey industry. It's literally flowing through his veins with his grandfather and his father's legacy in this industry. And he wants to build something great. His goal is for dancing goat to become like, the MGP of the future to be a beam. He replicated beams, Rick houses and built one of his own on his, <laughs> on his farm um, is absolute crazy dude, but in all the best ways. So dancing goat, if you can get out there and go score a bottle of their ride, score one of their single barrel picks, um, you will be in good hands. And like, you know, their whiskey sells between like 45 to $60, so nothing crazy. Yep. So I was actually able to the World Whiskey Day. They were one of oh, yeah. the, the bottles in that, and I, I I tasted some through that. And I've listened to him on probably half a dozen other podcasts. And man, that dude's entertaining. Just period. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter. And you can tell. You know, it's uh, I liken him. He's he's similar to um, Alan Bishop mm-hmm. you know, from from French Lick, and the fact that um, 
there, there's an intellect there, but there's a passion that exists for what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, you never know what, what is going to be said. You never know. I, I've seen some video uh, episodes that he's done where he'll just disappear off screen and come back with something like, Hey, I've got this thing. I want to talk about this thing that I just, you know, we just made or picked up or d- did whatever with, you know, there's, there's, yeah. just, there's a distinct um, passion that exists in anything he does. So I think that's a good call out as well as, as a fantastic one. Um, I, I've got one, one last question and then I don't have anything else unless you've got something you want to talk about. And I think um, we'll at least, will at least creep past um, Chris for Chris Blattner uh, in, yeah. in our, in our length to the episode. We made it there. We didn't even force it. We didn't even just be like, all right, let's just stare at each other for 10 minutes to try to get there. I, I just realized we're two hours in. I didn't realize it. So yeah, it's it, yeah. An hour and 55. I've been watching the, the top left corner here. Um, so you're, you're gaining notoriety and Australian single malt, I think as a segment is gaining notoriety. And you mentioned this earlier in the fact that, um, you, you feel like you're even competing or trying to be in the in competition with um, the the Japanese markets, right? The 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 beans that exist, the bean Suntory situation. Um, but and I think you are. I think you're you're in that realm of competition. But does that scare you? I mean, does, does that make mm. you feel like they're going to start showing up and saying, "All right, let's start buying folks up. Let's just start buying brands." So we, you know, because that's sort of what big players do is they're like, yeah. "All right." Well, there's an interesting market segment that people are that's gaining traction. And instead of starting from scratch, we can just go buy Star Word or we can go buy anybody else. And, you know, maybe that's not a problem for your boss. But like, does that concern you? Do you think that's like a good thing or you don't you're not worried about it at all because it doesn't matter? Uh, yeah, well, there's a precedent set in the 1800s. The Whiskey Trust did this um, where they started buying up brands, not even to necessarily have them in operation to use their juice, but this to shut them down mm-hmm. um, to, to basically create a devoiding competition so uh it's been happening you know all throughout ever since the legitimate whiskey industry i'm sure it happened in ireland scotland and times before they moved over here and started creating american whiskey uh in full transparency star Wars does have a very large investor behind them um okay. we are so we're not a diageo brand but we are a part of a company called distilled ventures as a subsidiary of Diageo and they invested into us with really the hope of the one day Star Wars would become a Diageo brand. Okay. Um, we're still in this incubator system. So we don't have to really about really have to deal with like another large global um, world single malt coming and buying us up and then just feeding us into a blend of something else where we're actually a part of this development where they want us to become the biggest brand in world whiskey as well. And it has that that similar shared focus and that similar shared goal when building the brand. It's not about building the brands and then just like throwing it into a scotch blend, even though we can't do that, obviously, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're the only Australian single malt they have investment behind. So it wasn't like we could just like start buying other distilleries, throw us into a bunch of blends and then lose the distillery. And next thing you know, star becomes a footnote and people are like, Oh, hundred years from now, like Star Wars revived, like the old family recipe, you know, and all, right. this, all this confusion to like, what you guys been around for 150 years, but I just heard about you on Thursday. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, but I do worry about what my place will be as an individual of Star Wars, like legitimacy of my position comes behind when it comes behind selling a world single malt. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a guy from America, people kind of give me a little bit of a hard time of like, why are you wasting your time over there? Come, come over back to bourbon, come back to rye and like where you belong. Um, it, 
almost feels like a, like an imposter syndrome sometimes when I've only been to our distillery one time, like I've, or one week and I've been there numerous times in that week, but I haven't even seen our updated version of our distillery. We renovated two years ago and we have more tanks for the first process of building whiskey. We have a whole different still. We have a whole different setup. We moved 6,000 barrels to a whole different warehouse. And sometimes I wonder like, am I truly representing this brand in the right fashion, not being Australian? Because so many people meet me. I'm at a booth that says Australian whiskey behind me. And then I open up my mouth, this Midwestern accent. And you're like, like, what? Like, are you from Australia? And I'm like, no, I'm from here. Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. This is what we all sound like. Can you you fake an accent for us? I'm like, I don't want to offend anybody I work with or Crocodile Dundee. Um, It's like Crocodile Dundee lied to you all. This is exactly what Australia sounds mm -hmm, like. mm -hmm. Yeah, but so I do. There is a worry that, you know, single malts might not make it, I guess, in a way. I think there's too many good brands out there, but you could be dominated by those some of those other brands too um i think we're doing something special i really do like i'm not just saying it because i work for the brand um we just released this new whiskey called octave which is our first single estate whiskey where we took wine barrels from only one certain vineyard and one type of their wine barrel and barrel aged it um for like a single kind of like a small batch release essentially what we call it here in america and the other day i was uh, showing it to one of my buyers and he's like Star Wars grown up like this bottle defines it as growing up. It's like over the last three years of drinking it, I've enjoyed it. But this one's like, wow, it kind of blows me away. And like, I need this on my back shelf versus, yeah, I'll take it. I was like, wow, that's really great. It's like, it shows, it shows the brand is doing something correct and going in a different path. And people are seeing it now um, for its own. It's not just like, oh yeah, that weird Australian whiskey that the guy comes in, talks about every once in a while. It's like, no, you can call for Star Wars. People call for Star Wars in bars bartenders know about it when i go and say hey can i, can I get like a star ward and soda they're not looking at me like what did you say they're like oh i know right. where the bottle is and then go reach for it so there's some validation there but i mostly just worry about if i'm doing my job correctly and doing the job justice when it comes to being american selling 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 but more representing a brand from australia because you can sell anything um i work with salespeople all the time they don't have a passion for it. They don't have an investment into the brands. They have an investment in themselves to get their bonus. And that's fine. That's cool. That's why they do that job. I always tell people I can never be a distributor rep selling whiskey for less than $200,000, which is completely outrageous. So that would never happen because I would never want to do it. Um, I like working for one brand. I like working for one distillery. And like, I, like we said earlier, being friends with my boss and being able to like go out with, with pride each and every day to represent his brand and not just like some random person out there. Yeah. And you know, you, you, you made this statement way, way earlier um, that you're, you're, you're the type of person who's never content. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that I think that's going to sh- shine through, you know, like maybe you're right. Anybody, anybody can probably go and sell Jim Beam. Anybody can go and sell, um, any of the Buffalo trace products. Like, you know, you, why don't you come back to sell bourbon and rye? That that's the easy game in North America. At least it feels like that would be the easy game in North America for for a salesperson right now. Is mm-hmm. we're in the middle of a bourbon boom, come back and sell bourbon. That's easy. But your your attachment to what you're selling um, is feels like it's just a part of who you are, part of your identity. 
you're not necessarily content with saying, okay, well, I'm in enough places where I'm recognized. No, no, let's, how do we get to the next step? How do we get to the next level? How do we get to the next place? And it's not because you want to make more money. It's because you want to show people the thing that your company is making, the degree of pride that exists within it. And those are the, those are the types of things that I think about whenever I start thinking about, you know, like um, larger investors or, you know, corporate oversight. Um, but we're seeing more and more brands where people are investing significant sums, but then saying, I'm not going to mess with how you guys do business. I just mm -hmm. recognize this is a profitable venture. And if I give you more money, I think you can make more money and I'm not yeah. going to get in the way of it, you know? And that's as of right now, you know, that's sort of what for all the good and bad of it, that might be, that feels like what the Pritzkers are doing with, with Barkstown bourbon company and green river where they've, you know, kind of got this significant investment. Um, there's a host of other smaller brands that are picking up these types of investors that are saying, just keep doing your thing. But at some point does the, does the, the bean counter come in and say, well, if we change our mash bill to this, we can save 2.7% per bottle. And that'll yeah. be, you know, they, but you've got to get to a volume before those types of conversations really, really come into play. But, um, yeah, no, I, no, so I, 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 I think I've wandered around that. No, I, I think it's so true as well. Cause I was just down in Kentucky. Uh, my wife and I were down there doing the bourbon trail and hanging out in Louisville for a long weekend. And there's a reason why we brought back the bottles we brought back from the distilleries we purchased bottles from. And there's other distilleries we went, did our tour. And as soon as the last tip of the tasting was done, we got up from our chairs, kindly excused ourselves and walked out the gift shop empty handed. And it wasn't just because the whiskey wasn't our favorite. It was because of the experience we had there or didn't mm -hmm. have there. Um, and you could tell like, Oh, like we're just trying to mass produce these brands out here because we're trying to make some money and it, it looks pretty. It's, it's fine whiskey, but there's nothing special about it. But when I can go into peerless and have like a seven year old single barrel that tastes more unique than any bourbon I've had in a very long time. Sure. It's worth the money to spend on that and bring it home. Like, I know what these dudes have been doing. Like they revived the old brand. They're transparent what they're doing. They're not saying like we've mm -hmm. been around for 150 years. Like, no, we've been back for seven and a half years. We got our number back in Kentucky as a distillery and we're reviving this brand that our family left behind. Cool. I'm going to go support you guys. I'm going to bring a bottle back from, back from Kentucky because I understand that. I also got a bottle of green river by the, by the way. So, yeah, that was, that, that was one of my most pleasant surprises because green river, the distillery for green river is only a couple hours from my house. You know, okay. it's, it's, it's relatively close. Um, and you know, before when it was OZ type, we won't anyways, that yeah. was a really, really big surprise. And then in 2021, you know, I kind of ran through, you know, what are the favorite things that I tasted in 2021? Peerless is double oaked came out of nowhere for me. Like I mm -hmm. knew they were doing it. Um, but I didn't know what my expectation was because I've, you know, I, I did the same thing that all the whiskey geeks in Kentucky did as I followed peerless from the day that they started. And whenever they got to their first release of, um, was it the first release of rye two years in, or maybe it was the first release of bourbon yeah. four years in, it was right. yeah. uh, they, they were doing an event. It was like, you know, go line up at the distillery. And I, like, I'm, I'm toying with, do I drive three and a half hours to go get a <laughs> bottle? Like I'm, I really want to go. Um, but I, I couldn't take off, like I couldn't go up the night before and stay in a hotel. And so three and a half hour drive plus it's across the time zone. So we'll enter into Eastern time. And so now it's four and a half technically, right? If I'd have left here at a reasonable hour, I wouldn't have been able to buy a bottle cause they were all gone. Right. 
within a couple of hours of opening the front doors because there was that degree of attachment to that particular brand, their story and what they were doing. And they didn't, you know, MGP exists for a lot of people to be able to pick up and sell whiskey while they're waiting for their own stuff to Mm -hmm. age. And there's not necessarily any shame in that, especially whenever you're clear about what you're doing. Right. But they didn't take that route. You know, they just sat on it and they ate it for a couple of years, basically trying to get to a rye. And then when they got to a rye, you know, like what if it wasn't good? Like what if we get to two years and it's like, this is not good. Like, what do you do then? You know, like that's, there, there's this audacious nature, this, this, this unreasonable expectation of success that exists between some of these people that start off brands. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like there's no reasonable thought that like, ah, this should, w- this should work perfectly fine. Cause right. tons of people have tried it and failed but you did and then you succeeded and it came out well and then when your bourbon hit it was good as well right it's one that i will always have like i don't have duplicates of of anything but there are some things that when it's gone i won't replace and then there are other things that there will always be a bottle and peerless lives in that realm for me uh, always just based off of who they are their identity their ethos and the quality you can't get there with one or the other right but if both are in place heck yeah and you're right. Like they've got some of the most interesting single barrels that exist. Oh, dude, dude all over the place. And it's great. No, I, and it, it reminds me of, uh, when you say like, is, if it's good at the end of the day, like, is it going to be good? There's this movie called Fanboys. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. It's the guy, these guys, the whole premise is these guys are trying to, um, sneak into, to, uh, Skywalker Ranch to watch uh, Phantom Menace before it comes out because one of their friends has cancer and like trying to get there and like all these crazy little things happen along the way. Mm-hmm. Fun little comedy. And so eventually they get into spoiler alert, they get into this, I don't know, break into a movie theater, blah, blah, blah. George Lucas catches them and they, it's like, oh, your friend has cancer. Cool. You can watch the movie. So they get to watch Phantom Menace before it comes out, before anybody comes out. And the very last line of the movie is they're sitting in this private screening of Phantom Menace's. Guy turns over to his buzz and goes, what if it sucks? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like the, fade, that's fade the, the black. Fade the black. Yeah. And like I, we, we definitely lived with that. Like my, my boss was making whiskey, Australian single malt, putting it in red wine barrels and fully maturing it in these red wine barrels and didn't know what the hell was going to happen. 18 mm-hmm. months in, he like tasted the whiskey. He's like, it's pretty good. And Jim McCune came by the distillery by chance. Um, he was visiting Australia to do some work with another distillery. And he's like, what do you taste it? And he's like, he's like, I think it's kind of flipped in about 20 months into barrel aging. And he's like, it's fine. Like, it's good. It's, there's, there's a lot of good things going on here. Whiskey takes time. It takes development inside of those barrels. And the worst part of this job is the patience that comes along with it built into what you do because you put whiskey inside of a barrel and wait to see what happens and you have no freaking control over that whatsoever and so my boss waited and he waited for another year and a half and then put out this product and 15 years years later we're sitting there talking about how we're releasing new products to the united states we've sold like 60 single barrels across the united states and people are starting to understand what the what 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 star wars is a brand just have to take a a giant leap of faith, but also know like, you know what you're doing? Like starting a distillery from scratch is just to start a distillery, but you don't know how to actually turn the machines on. 
it's dumb. Like my boss went and learned from Jim or from Bill Lark, who is the OG of craft distilling in Australia. He learned from him for a year and a half to two years about how to distill after being a brewer himself. So he honed in those techniques and those talents and went back to Melbourne and started his own brand. And Star Wars is here today because of that. Yep. And I'll say, so, you know, for a long time, people would be like, you know, what's the most interesting and interesting isn't as always the the best term maybe to use but you know what's the most interesting whiskey you've ever tried for a long time it was the barstown bourbon company did an orange curacao finish mm. um, i think it was distillier i can't remember who it was they did it with but it was very interesting not not in a bad way it was good and yeah. and that was my go-to answer until about nine months ago one of the tastings that you hosted um i was able to try y'all's ginger beer cask finish starward and it was on a tasting where there weren't enough for everybody to get one. And so it was like, oh, some people got this and some people got that. And I was one of the few people that got the ginger beer. <laughs> that was one of the most fantastically interesting things I've ever tried. And mm. like, I, that, that is the story that I will now tell people like, hey, what's the most interesting whiskey you've ever had? Like, let me tell you about this time that I had this ginger beer finished Australian single malt. And almost unequivocally, everyone will always say, I understood every word you just said, but I don't feel like any of them should go together in a sentence. I, I don't, I, oh, a hundred percent. Like, I don't even know if the story I'm telling him, like after getting through all of that, cause it's so many levels of the story, how this thing took place. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the right way. And then here it is. Like drink it, decide right. for yourself. Cause it's, it's first off, it's coming out in America in this fall. So I, that's I, awesome. I think I saw that. Did I see some advertising material on this or did I make that up in my brain? No, it's probably out there somewhere in the world. Okay. Um, definitely. I felt like are. I saw it and I was like, Oh my goodness. But also yeah. I live in Western Kentucky. So well, it'll yeah. be available online. So that's mostly okay. where it's going to live. Um, we might even do a fun NFT with it. Oh, getting all, all crazy out there, but no, it is this weird whiskey. It's the first time I tried it. I don't think I knew it existed when I went to Australia and that's the first place I tried it. And I was like, I, I tried a lot of things that day because I was getting very acclimated to the brand. Um, and I had it and I was like, well, that just stands out more than anything I ever tried before. <laughs> but like, even as my boss is telling me the story of how they built this, I'm like, I don't understand it. It probably took me like 10 times to hear the story about how it actually took place and develop. And it's this weird thing of, they had a, um, we have a bar at our distillery and my boss was like sick of buying ginger beer. So he asked the distillers to brew a ginger beer. So being the degenerate brewers, they are, they are distillers. They like made a 20% ginger beer or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> right. And I'm sure it tasted fine, but my boss was like, we can't sell this to the public and put it in cocktails. So they're like, let's barrel age it. So they put it in like an X barrel. I'm sure it was an X Nova barrel and um, let it barrel age in there. Then they, I don't, I don't know what they actually did with the whiskey uh, at the or the ginger beer at the end of the day. They just took it home and drank it themselves or gave it, I think they gave it to friends mostly. But this brewery called Boat Rocker um, found out about it and they're like, oh, can like whatever happened to that barrel you guys did with it? And they're like, it's somewhere over here. Do you want it? And they're like, yeah. So they took it back to their brewery. They barrel aged the brew in there for somewhere around like, a, like eight months. I don't remember what it even was. Sent the, sent the barrel back to us and we finished um, some of our single malt inside of there. And that became the first iteration of, of ginger beer cask because it had this really like fiery gingery character to it. Mm -hmm. um, so then that was 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. 
and ever since then we've been basically doing a release once a year and the eighth iteration of it will come out this uh or next january or something like that um but now it's essentially we have solera which is our single malt will be always barrel age inside of these australian sherry casts they're always rechar barrels barrel age for four years after some barrel aging it's dumped in this giant vat of uh every previous matured barrel age um solera that we've done over the last 11 and a half to 12 years and so it mingles together at cast strength we bottle it at 86 proof um so bringing it down a little bit after that and so you can technically find like every iteration of solera inside of every bottle of it micro doses of it um but what we do is we take that whiskey um and then we finish it inside these ginger beer casts that now boat rocker barrel edge is their ginger beer they make on site with one of our x barrels send it back to us we take solera out of the vat finish it in there for like 30 months and have this like really great fiery gingery delicious single malt that's swarmed with like fall autumnal flavors to it but then like bright and fresh at the same time and gingery so it's kind of a it's kind of amazing like you gotta try a little sample of it i don't even have anything of it i, I wish i had something of it but i tell people about it and they're like what like just just the process itself i want to try it so right um very very tasty whiskey it'll be available it in the u.s very soon that's that's exciting and 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 somehow it it maintains some degree of and you know i'm also looking just just off memory at this point right this is yeah. nine months ago or whatever but it's sort of like that ghost that you chase forever, but it, it still maintains that effervescence that comes with carbonation. Like it, yeah. I know it's not carbonated, but and ginger can have that impact, right? Cause it gives you that, I don't know that, that experience on the tongue that feels like carbonation, but it just, yeah, it's like uplifting. It feels like I took a whiskey and put a little bit of ginger beer in it and I made myself a cocktail, but it's still straight whiskey at this point. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's dangerous. Like it's dangerous at that point. Oh, yeah. Like I'm drinking a cocktail, but the cocktail is still at the the bottle proof, which you know is going to be you know 80, 90, whatever proof yeah, it happens that, to, to come out. I think it's like 96. That one, right? So, so 96. So it's a 96 proof cocktail. Like it's yeah. not diluted, but it tastes like a cocktail. It was fantastic. Best, best old fashioned you can have though with that one. I would I would almost feel ashamed to do anything else to it besides that. But like, you know, I also drink whiskey however the fuck you want to. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like that's the other side of it. Yeah, man, that, I couldn't believe how many distilleries down in Kentucky kept saying, like, you shouldn't drink Pappy 23 with with rocks or with Coke or with ginger. I'm like, first of all, why are you talking about other brands on your tours? Second of all, how do you why do you care like how people drink? What is, their whiskey? It, what is it of your business? Like if if it is my disposable income. I, I I can I can I can understand it like if if I go to someone's house and they offer me something that feels special to them yep. and they say I would really prefer if you didn't do it that way. Now yep. I'm not that way. Like somebody comes into this house and they say I want to try whatever. I'm like you can try whatever, with the exception of one or two things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple that I might be you know bunkering for a long time just yep. for a special special occasion. But you want to mix it with Coke, mix it with Coke, man. Well, like whatever it's going to take, like this is all meant to be drank, you know, with the exception of those two bottles, mm-hmm. everything here has the top popped on it yep. with the intent to consume it over time. And if someone's preferred method of consumption is different than that's fine. Yep. Like, I don't have to drink it your way and you don't have to drink it my way, but yeah, no whiskey snobs get off on being like, Oh, you can't, you don't, you don't drink it straight through with a Glen Carey. Like, when you travel, do you have a Glen Cairn? Like, what what bar are you going to that normally has one? Right. Yeah. I, I, there are people that shockingly do that, but yeah, it's it's like you have like Booker No, for example. He drank everything with ginger. 
Like you listen to the Van Winkles, how they drink their whiskey. They put orange peel twist. in it. Yeah. With a twist. It is yeah, with a like, Yeah. Like, that was the best part of that entire book. Like, so the, the, the Pappy land book that came yeah. out, um, the best part of that is just reading that specific line. Like, ah, you know, like the, his, his son goes into a barn and is like, I want, you know, this is, I don't know. Maybe it was Pappy, whatever. Don't know. Yeah. With a twist. And they're like, hey, can you, how could you drink it that way? And he's like, this is my dad's whiskey. Like, I made this it. is my family. That's this is this is my name. This is how we drink it. Yeah, you know, and nobody's gonna believe him, obviously, because you know, if I'm in New York and that occurs in a bar, I'm gonna be like, yeah, bullshit. The, you're right. not a Van Winkle. Get out of here. Yeah. You may have a fake ID or whatever. <laughs> you know, unless unless you're part of the whiskey verse and you're like, oh no, I know exactly who that is. That'll be one of our great podcasts. Uh, right, Thompson and I have been uh, ducking yeah. each other for a long time. Uh, we. On Thanksgiving of 2020, we had booked doing a podcast together. And then he's one of my favorite writers, too. Like, going back to, like, favorite writers, Wright Thompson, like, guy has me in tears every time I listen to him on ESPN share one of his stories. So, like, eventually, when we do it, I have uh, I have many notes for him in that book about, about drinking whiskey and hanging out and hopefully having a good bottle together. Do do you feel so? Because you know, Wright Thompson is not necessarily known for for whiskey writing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's 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 not his that's not his game. And I, I loved reading the book myself. No, no. Um, do you think that it, whenever somebody approached him about writing this, he's like, only if I get to drink good whiskey. Like, was was that the motivating factor, or was it just because there is this incredible story that exists in Pappy Land? No, like so. I first heard even I heard about the book. I don't think he's even done with the book yet. Um, he's on Dan Patrick's show talking about it. Uh, God, it must've been, it must've been at least 2019, if not 2018, because mm-hmm. he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't finished with the book yet. Cause he said, they all finished the book. I'll come in and drink uh, a 15 year old Pappy with you in, uh, in studio. I don't think they ever did that, but, um, I think it was for him that lost connection he had with his dad and mm-hmm. recognizing that inside the Van Winkle family is about carrying on this legacy and he could do it through a family of the South, which obviously he's so, so connected to. And I, I don't think, I don't think drinking Pappy 15, 2023, 20, anything to do with it. I think it was about sharing the story between a father and a son and then another father and a son and continuing that legacy down the line, which he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of trying to do for his own kids. Yep. Yeah. It's fantastic. So, all right. Um, we're at two hours and 20 minutes and nice. I'm, we did it. I'm, I'm sure you have to work in the morning. I have to work in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did, is there anything that you needed to, you wanted to cover that we didn't cover across tonight? Um, I, I feel like we hit it all. Um, I just, uh, thanks for the, uh, the outlet. Thanks for anybody who listened. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, go buy Star Wars. You can buy it StarWars.com. Follow us on the old social medias. Um, Octave is our newest release. I think it's the best thing we put out as a distillery. Um, if you can so it is hand, Octave, not not octave as in music, but Octave. Is it's kind of a play on that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Whatever. I'll leave the story there. Um, yeah, but uh, but delicious whiskey. We only have like. I think 12, 1300 bottles in the U S. Um, so kind of hard to find, but we still have some available. We just released it about a month ago. Um, great whiskey, more things coming out like ginger beer cask and also unexpeded, which is a, uh, Nova finished inside of some Isla scotch barrels, um, from one distillery that I'm legally not allowed to say, but, uh, it's a prominent one that might uh, feature the face of a comedic actor. 
sometimes. <laughs> well, what you can do, here's here's what you can do, right? Is 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 you can't disclose what the distillery is, but you could say, you know, what page are they on the malt whiskey yearbook for 2022, Ooh. right? Nice. I like um, that. Yeah, I only have this because I did a, an episode a couple three weeks ago with Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, Jenna from Scotch Malt mm. Whiskey Society. We were tasting through some bottles and I didn't know that this book existed to be able to tell me, you know, like I could get the correlation of who made what bottle from yeah. their particular selections. And so um, before we even got off done, you know, having our conversation, I'm like Amazon ended up over here trying to make sure the book's on its way so I can connect it. But see, now you've got a way where you can be like, we can't say who it is, but if I were to look on page 27, there you know, you that's where it would be. It's not page 27. I don't know what page it is, <laughs> but I, I know who you're talking about. And, um, you know, you, you talk about podcast episodes and this is one of the things that's always been super encouraging. And so if anybody's ever thinking about starting another whiskey podcast, because you know, that's what the world needs, um, is another whiskey podcast, but people are incredibly open. Like, you know, when I reach out to you, you're just like, yeah, sure. No problem. And there's really no reason you should, um, you know, it's not going to necessarily push you forward a ton because it's not a huge platform, but largely people agree to it. But that particular man that might be on the cover of that bottle, that would be like a moonshot for me. Like I would love <laughs> to have that conversation. Um, and it doesn't even have to be entirely about whiskey. He's got a bunch of really fantastic books, Oh um, yeah, got a really incredible human being story that yeah. exists and he happens to like whiskey. So that just sort of, you know, kind of fits the vein of things. Yeah. I mean, like his whole other job of being a craftsman of being a woodworker, that could be, it's a parallel right into the whiskey industry right there. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You can, can you go on that conversation and go forever and be like, Oh, by the way, like you're on the one of the most successful com comic or, uh, uh, well, yeah, I think right now, but um, TV shows of all time, sitcom, yeah, sitcom. There we go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All I've right, lost, I got I've, we, lost, I've lost everything when it comes to streaming, yeah. We've got we've got to stop now because I will keep going and you'll keep going, and we'll end up it'll be two in the morning, and both of us have, have jobs. Um, appreciate you for joining me tonight. Yeah, um, anybody who wants to go out buy Starwood bottles, go listen to Key in the Lake podcast, it's one of the, the best podcasts that exists out there. Even if I remove the whiskey nomenclature from it, it's just a great podcast, you know. Period. Oh, thanks. Um, Appreciate you for joining me tonight. We'll we'll do our outro here. So thanks. Thanks, John. This is awesome. Appreciate it. No problem. So thanks for tuning in for this offering of the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Um, leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media. I can be found um, on at www.embellishedpod.com with all of my links, account, contact details, any of that stuff. I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out.